Pearson-Ravitz story begins with Dr. Stephanie Pearson, a passionate OBGYN at the height of her career. But when a shoulder injury struck during a precipitous delivery, her dreams were shattered, leaving her unable to practice medicine. Determined to make a difference, Dr. Pearson became an advocate for her peers, guiding them through the complex disability process. Alongside insurance expert Scott Ravitz, Dr. Pearson founded Pearson Ravitz, a company determined to approach insurance differently. Together, they set their mission to educate and empower physicians to protect their most valuable asset, their income, and the most important people in their life, their family. Today, Pearson Ravitz serves the medical community in all 50 states. At Pearson Ravitz, they understand the unique concerns of physicians. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness or injury could leave you and your family in a devastating financial situation. But with a little planning and guidance, you can prepare for every possibility. Visit PearsonRavitz.com to schedule your consultation with a Pearson Ravitz advisor. Hello, and welcome to our final episode of the year on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Wow, that sounds really weird to say out loud. I'm Dr. Bradley Block, and as we bid farewell to 2023, it's time to continue our Remember This series that reflects on the top episodes resonating the most with you and with me. This week, we're diving into my personal top picks, a mix of insightful, thought-provoking, and even humor-filled conversations. Featuring guests from diverse backgrounds, each brings unique perspectives to our medical practice. From understanding nonverbal communications with Blake Eastman to redefining habit formation with Dr. B.J. Fogg and exploring sensitive patient conversations with Dr. Stephanie Sog, each conversation has been a journey of discovery. And let's not forget the invaluable lessons on how to be funny with Scott Dickers, founder of The Onion, a truly unique perspective in our field. Kind of threw that fourth in as a bonus. Surprise! Let's get started. Let's kick off with a truly unique conversation from episode 82 with Blake Eastman. As a professional poker player and nonverbal communication expert, Blake brought us an incredibly distinct perspective on the challenges we faced during the pandemic. We interviewed him about using nonverbal cues from behind a mask when we were in the throes of the pandemic, but the lessons still apply. We delve into facial expressions, vocal tonality, and how to optimize those telehealth visits. Blake Eastman is a guest like no other we've had. He's a professional poker player and founded School of Cards, the first brick-and-mortar poker school in the country, and is the creator of Beyond Tells, a poker tells training site. He has a graduate degree in psychology and taught psychology at the City University of New York for six years. While he was doing all of that, he also provided consulting services to physicians, practices, and hospitals regarding nonverbal communication and conducts his own large-scale independent research on nonverbal communication. The current pandemic has hamstrung our ability to read nonverbal communication and to convey it. We're either behind a mask or a blurry image on a telehealth visit. So he teaches us what to prioritize with regards to our own nonverbal cues, how to optimize a telehealth visit, the importance of the cadence and volume of our speech, and cues for recognizing understanding. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Blake Eastman, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we're going to start talking about 
expressive nonverbal communication. So what doctors really need to focus on in ourselves when we're communicating with our patients, be it behind a mask, behind a mask, and all the PPE regalia, or maybe over telehealth. And, and we'll, we'll break each one down. So if you had to pick one part of the body that we need to really remember to focus on, to make sure that I'm conveying the appropriate nonverbal cues, which would it be? Uh, definitely upper half of the face, so muscles right around the eyes. So the eyes and the muscles around the eyes. So the brow, the left and right of the eyes, going to be the most important. And it's going to be most important in a mask-wearing COVID-19 sort of approach. Is that the same, you know, when this is all finished, there are some lessons to be learned, but, you know, there hopefully will be a point where we're not in masks anymore. Is the answer still the same? I think so. With a lot of communication with doctor in a, in a sort of medical framework, I, I like to think of two things, interest and authority. So a doctor wants to be able to display genuine interest in what a patient's going through to have that level of rapport. And then there also wants to be indications of authority. A lot of authority can be dictated via vocal tones, but the interest, it, it, a lot of it comes from the eyes. Because you know when you walk into a doctor's office, there's that period where it's like, you're on the computer, you're doing what you're doing, and then it's like, all right, Blake, what's going on? And that's that moment where I'm like, are they really listening to me? Are my symptoms being listened to in a way that I feel heard? And a lot of that comes from upper facial movement. And it's sort of like if you had a flat affect while I was saying all these things and you didn't say, hmm, or you didn't have any other follow-ups, it doesn't look that engaged and that interested. Okay. So like, like a furrowed brow, right? So one, I need to make sure I'm looking at my patient. So, so Blake, what brings you here today? Or how are you feeling today? What's going on? Why are you here? Pull my face away from the computer, make eye contact, like furrow my brow. Yeah, I mean, like the, the furrowing of the brows is why it's it's difficult to sometimes discuss behavior because there's a lot of context that's lost in the discussion. But you want to think of it this way, like head nods, squinting more than furrowing is sort of the indication. So if I said to you, like, listen, my head's really my head's really hurting or something like that. And you're, and you're like, all right, can you describe what it's like? And I'm like, all right, well, above my eyebrows, it's really hurting. And then all of a sudden you look at me and you squint and you nod your head like, okay, I know that my message is being heard in that instance. It's sort of uh, understanding that you're listening. Uh, and I've, I've worked with a lot of doctors and sometimes they'll just flat stare at you <laughs> while you're discussing. And it's like, okay, are you getting this or are you not getting this? Right? And you want to have as much of that behavior in alignment with, I'm interested in you, I'm hearing everything you're saying, and I'm right with you during this entire interaction. And the reason why is because when then the advice or the recommendation or the course of treatment comes, it's treated with way more authority because it's like, all right, well, he collected or she collected all the information. And then there's this level of authority as opposed to like, oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Where it's like, well, did you even listen to what I was saying? It didn't even seem like it. And this is the same thing in a normal social context. If you were having a conversation with someone at a bar or having a conversation with somebody on the train, it's, it's the same level of thing, but it's just so hyper-focused on interest and authority in a medical framework. So make it look like you're interested and concentrate on the upper half of the face. And in a dynamic way is I think what I'm hearing. Like rather mm -hmm. than like when I said furrow my brow, like that sounds like a fixed expression, right? I'm just furrowing my brow and there it is fixed as if like, like I'm concentrating on you, 
but squinting, nodding, mm-hmm, like all this is a, is dynamic and needs to be used in concert. Um, and and just to be clear to the audience, we're not like pretending that we're listening. We're listening, and if you're listening, you're following. Mm-hmm. But like if you're listening and you're stone faced, and you're like, I haven't been able to get my Botox recently, so now my face is extra dynamic. But like. Really, I mean that. I think that's that's really a liability of of Botox. Oh yeah, you get a definitely. lot of Botox. Like the lower half of your face isn't isn't moving because you're wearing a mask. Now the only thing is the upper half. Now that's not moving, but it needs to be. You know, you, you need to make sure that you're conveying to your audience that you are listening and that you are present. And so these are the. So it needs to be. It needs to be dynamic. But but what about in like, let's say it's an inpatient setting or or urgent care in ER where you're not just wearing the mask, right? You're wearing a face shield, you're wearing a gown, you're wearing gloves. At that point, they're, they're, they might even have a tough time seeing your furrowed brow. What can we do in terms of, and I know you hate this term, I know, I apologize, <laughs> body language, right? What, so, what, what can yeah. we do on that front? Well, I think the first thing that's important is uh, we have this sort of model that we talk about when we're looking at any interaction, behavior context-wise. So what we're constantly doing as humans is we're identifying behavior that exists in a current context and we're determining the reason why. So what happens is when someone's wearing this gigantic shield on their face and their communication is sort of broken, I think it's really important for first to be the acknowledgement of the change in situation. Uh, I, I don't know what hospital group it was. I think it was Columbia. But what they started doing is they started taking pictures of themselves smiling and then taping it onto their shirts. Yes, I saw sh- that. And it said like, this is what I really look like. Like that is an example of doing that with a picture, right? It's showing that like, even though I look sort of intimidating right now and my whole behavior is cut off, I am a person, I'm able to communicate with you just like anybody else and sort of letting them know that you know it's difficult though because a lot of this stuff is doctors are busy you know like it, you're seeing all these patients you're moving left and right it, it's sort of the little things that you need to improve on that have the biggest net effects touch can be a very 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 powerful thing but the thing that's tricky about touch is you you got to do it right if you touch somebody and it's not assertive and warm it could become awkward and uncomfortable really quickly so certain doctors and certain people are able to execute this uh, and certain people just aren't. And it's very difficult to, in terms of like prox- proxemics and touch to sort of tell people, all right, just touch someone in a way that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable. Like it's like a practiced effort. I think a and good I think rule in, would be a shoulder yes, inner thigh, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely shoulder. I mean, I've had, I've had opportunities where I remember being, I remember vividly being in a, a dentist's office and they were doing x-rays of my teeth. And I have a weird thing where I was like, I had the x-ray thing in my mouth and it was really hurting. And it was like, you know, I wasn't complaining or anything, but visually I was, I was experiencing some distress. And I remember the first woman that helped me, she did it twice and it didn't work. And then like the senior nurse came in and she put her hand on just on my ankle. Cause I was like laying down and she just looked me in the eyes and she goes, we'll get it. And I remember feeling so relieved just immediately after that moment because it was like that sign of compassion and authority. And, and that's sort of what touch does. Uh, definitely, I think that vocal quality is more important. People are going to have to get used to speaking louder. Vocal 
tonality and loudness is going to be, you know, it's an indication of authority as well. And especially when you have like two masks on and it's difficult, we want to sound clear and vibrant. So definitely vocal exercises could help with that a, a lot as well. So I'd, I'd crowdsourced some questions on Twitter from some of the med Twitter, Twitter community. And one thing that one of the doctors pointed out was that if your patient has hearing loss, and as an ear, nose, and throat doctor, a lot of my patients have hearing loss. Um, so I'm really glad that, that she pointed this out. If your patient has hearing loss, they might depend more on lip reading that, than they even realize. And now you put a mask over that. So I think it would also be helpful to acknowledge, like, like you said about acknowledging, like, I recognize that all this personal protective equipment can be intimidating and can cut me off from you. And I just want to put that out there and let the, let you know, you know, there is a person in here that wants to take care of you. Acknowledging that you might have some difficulty communicating. And if you do, don't be ashamed to ask me to repeat myself. It's my fault for not being loud enough, not your fault for not understanding me. So I think with the patients that might yeah, have hearing that's loss, so important. It's, it's really going to be important. And so, so you, you're saying, right, because nonverbal communication, you're saying is not just the way we move our face and the way we move our bodies, it's also vocal tonality. And so do you think it would be helpful to slow the cadence, intentionally slow the cadence of our speech in this situation? Not necessarily. So this is where nonverbal behavior and the concept of body language, it just gets such a bad rap in so many communities because it, it's spoken about at such such a simple, simplistic level. And like I've worked with doctors that would be described as creepy because of the timing of their facial expressions. Like their smile is just too quick. It doesn't have the morphology of a genuine smile. So you tell a doctor like smile more and they start smiling in a weird way and it has that sort of <laughs> negative effect. Uh, so there, these are just subtle things where we learn them throughout life. We become lazy. And also we don't have cameras on ourselves all the time giving us feedback on what's going on. And like people in a doctor-patient now, that's one of the few social dynamics where it's just extreme authority, right? It's sort of like a judge. Like you go into a doctor's office, the average person is not going to know how to navigate the medical community. The average person doesn't have a ton of doctor friends or anything like that. Like what the doctor says is going to be like gospel in a lot of ways, right? So I think that with this speech adjustment, we call that a speech, basically. A speech is a way of communicating that sort of hedges problems with interactions. So if you ever have, so for example, like if let's say the doctor's throat was killing them and they were wearing a mask, you say that. You say, listen, I'm, I'm so sorry I injured my throat, blah, blah, blah. I have this mask on for your safety, my safety. If you can't hear me, please, blah, blah, blah. People don't give the actual why or the context for the break in behavior. I remember like a doctor came in and he was limping and I clearly look at his limp and I'm like, you're right, doc? And he said something like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, oh, give me the context. Just be, <laughs> don't just say, yeah, I'm fine. Don't right? dismiss like, it, me. Because well, that's, then that's exactly. kind of like dismissive. It is. And, and people don't understand. Like, I mean, the, the main reason that I, was, I worked within the medical community is because there is some pretty convincing research that suggests that doctors that don't do these things are suited at a much higher rate. Right, because that empathy hasn't been connected, and people go, "It was that doctor's fault because they had a, a miserable experience." Also, we live in a point in society where reviews and just the hub of information of like, you have a really good experience with the doctor. You tell your other friends, "Listen, I got a guy for you. I got this woman for you. They're perfect. 
go see them, tell them Blake Eastman sent you. You know, like it's that kind of culture. And the ROI of a social interaction could be incredible. You could just nail an interaction. I mean, I had, I had a dermatologist that took so much care of me around seven or eight years ago. Anybody who I speak to in New York City that ever brings up anything, I'm like, go see my guy. He'll take care of. And you don't know who's going to be that kind of person. And you don't know how that's actually going to happen. A lot of that comes from behavior and how you make the person feel, not just a diagnosis, not just a course of treatment. It's a way more interpersonally powerful dynamic than most people think. And I think a lot of doctors need to reframe their thoughts. Like, I have a lot of respect for the fact that most doctors are trying to provide the highest level of care that they can. But care is twofold, right? It's emotional care. It's making sure that the person's whole, um, heard. And all that stuff is just as powerful if, as not this is the right treatment or this is, or you're fine, right? Like, do you know how many times doctors have said to me, like, you're fine and I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little intense, especially when I was younger. I'm like, I don't think I'm fine. Let me go do more research and go see three other doctors until I meet that one doctor. Uh, all right, let me give you an analogy. So when I was... When I was 19 years old, I was in graduate school and I got shingles all over my neck, right? All over my neck. It was bad. It was burning. It really hurt. Oh, yeah. I go to the doctor's I go to the doctor's office. I'm like, I don't know what this is, blah, blah, blah. So the doctor first explained everything to me. And one of the things that I loved is he took out his like giant book of, <laughs> of like- uh, Big book of rashes. Yeah, the big book, exactly. And he pointed to it and he explained to it and he went over the stress with me and he really uh, sort of, you shouldn't be having this at 19 years old. And like, it was like a really cool moment where I'm like, this guy's really looking out, look, hearing from me so, so forth. And then he did something that is unheard of in medicine. And if any of you run private practices, there's automated ways that you could do this. But he reached out like three weeks later. He reached out with a phone call and just said, hey, Blake, I'm just checking in to see if you're okay and if the sort of stress has dissipated, if, everything, if everything's okay, it's fine. I'm here for you. If not, give me a call back. And I was like, wow, I've never, I've never really, it's never happened before. And it was just like an amazing interaction. And this is the thing, everybody's doing this. E-commerce retailers are doing this. Restaurants are doing this. Everybody does this, but it's still slower in, in medicine, I think a lot oh, yeah. of the well, uh, people people had computers in their homes in the '80s, and doctors didn't get a lot of electronic medical yeah. records for, until a couple of years ago. So we're uh, we're 30 years behind the times in that. So and 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 that's an excellent idea for people to do to help build their practices, especially now. So if your practice is slow, and you know you're wondering how to get patients back, what what uh, Blake was talking about is you need evangelists. You need evangelists. Yeah. You need people that are going to be like, "Oh man, you gotta." And and online, yeah, the online reviews are huge. And another thing, a lot a lot of the place I think that I get my patients are the town blogs. The I'm not really mm, fond of the misogynistic term "mommy mm-hmm. mommy groups" of the Facebook groups. That's a lot in our town that actually has that in its name. But people will go on those and they they say, you know, does anyone know a dermatologist? Does anyone know? A dentist? Does mm-hmm. anyone know a carpenter? Does anyone know? And I think I got a lot, get a lot of my patients because any time one of my evangelists, and you only need a couple of them, see that they'll be like, "No, yeah, oh just man, a you got, you got to, you got to see my guy. You got to go see Doctor Black. You got to see Doctor Black." So, that, so, so taking these cues and focusing on just a few of these little things that Blake's talking about now are really going to help us. So, if we can pivot for a little and talk about telehealth, because in in telehealth. Right. Well, the focus, it's not as, it's not as high resolution. You might not be able to see all the facial expressions. So what I've found myself doing is gesticulating like a Muppet. 
like Kermit the Frog swinging his arms around just so my patients know that there's someone, like there's a human being on the other side of the screen. Mm-hmm. Do you have any recommendations for it? And also with regards to the eye contact, like, are we looking at the patient? Are we looking at the camera so that the patient, like, it looks like we're looking at them, but then we're not really looking at them. Like, do you have any recommendations for, for telehealth? Yeah. Uh, first thing is you should always drag the uh, their face be- as below your camera as possible, right? So like if you you have sort of like a MacBook, you're going to take it and put it in the middle of the screen so that you're as close as possible. There's always going to be a disconnect. In so it's on the vertical axis. The it might not be on the horizontal yeah. axis, but at least you're on the, the same vertical axis. Yeah, at least you're on the vertical so that it looks like you're not looking off left and right. Also... I think it's important if you're like taking notes or anything, you need to explain that. Like, hey, I'm just I'm just taking notes. So if I look left and right, that's the reason why I'm looking left and right. Uh, for teledoc stuff, I would say that what you said is correct, but also just an increase in energy specifically related to the loudness and vocal quality of your voice. Voice becomes a lot more important in any sort of like Zoom meeting or teledoc scenario. I mean, we've been doing a lot of work on financial presentations and I've seen that vocal tone just creates so much more power. And the reason why is there's sometimes lag, there's all these things, but a lot of these services, how they're built, they prioritize sound over video. So while video may freeze or a little bit look a little bit pixelated, the sound quality is still more important. So like anything that's going to raise your energy or anything that's going to get you to be a little bit more um, effective via voices probably going to be the best piece of advice for that. But everything else still applies, right? Same thing about the speech, same thing about understanding context. It's just a different medium. You might want to address the medium like, hey, so just so you know, sometimes this gets a little bit weird. If you can't hear me or if it breaks up, just please let me know. That's an indication that they're being heard right then and there. Just saying that like, if there's a problem, not, okay, let's get started. What's wrong with you? And then it's like, hey, uh, what was that? I couldn't hear you. Like, so just by hedging it with that shows that you're more caring and understanding. You seem to be getting back to that same concept over and over, right? Making sure the patient yeah, it's just knows different ways of that doing you're it. present and they're being heard and they're being understood. That's like every answer circles back to that. And I think there's there's an important point there. Yeah, and you should be able to do that. Like, put it this way. If you can't do that in your life, you can't do it in a uh, patient-doctor format either. So you want to be good, able good to do practice that. It with your, <laughs> practice it with yeah, your friends. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like there, and then it becomes just sort of this pattern of behavior that you get used to and that you're able to do it. And, I, and I'm not saying that like, and you, we don't need to fake it. Like you ideally, mo- I, I don't know many doctors, like doctors aren't walking into the room. A lot of this stuff is unintentional, right? They're like processing something, they're working on it. They just forget to do these kind of things. And that's why it has to become more of a pattern of behavior outside your practice. And then it starts to become much easier to apply inside of it. Well, yeah, you know, we're running behind. We're a little stressed. We're thinking about that last yeah. patient. Like we might not be totally present. So I think to your point, it's important to be present. So, you know, I think, and we've definitely said this in other episodes with other guests, but like stop outside the room, take a deep breath and get ready for this patient to now be the star of the show. You know, you got to get whatever is in your head out of your head. So you're not faking it. You are 
um, you are at genuinely present, but but still, you know, practice these these little things to to make sure that you do continue to do them in in your in your professional life. There was a question on Twitter that you might not have an answer to, mm-hmm. but one of the one of the physicians asked, "What do you do if a patient becomes tearful in a telehealth visit?" So, you know, typically what we would do is this is where the physical contact becomes important. You know, you offer them a tissue, you put you put a hand on them over telehealth, like we're like stuck. We're, you know, we want to reach in and give the patient a hug or something. Do you have any recommendations Uh, for what we can do? So this is, this is where the dynamic aspect of your ability as a communicator really comes to play, right? So crying is, there is not a uniform way of dealing with that. Just to be clear, different people respond to different energies, different people respond to different approaches and I really believe that the skill set of actively dealing with someone who is crying takes a completely different level of social ability and social skills. I would say for most people at this point, you just want to emphasize as much as possible via vocal tone. Like, I understand this is really hard. I understand what you're going through. I make sure that is actually heard. There's a difference between saying like, I understand that you're crying. Versus like, I really understand that this is a hard time for you. I just want you to let you know that. And there's just such a different in execution. And it's tricky because those of you who are listening to this, I don't really know what your spectrum of communication is. So for example, I'm not kidding. I, I had somebody cry three weeks ago. Uh, a client start tearing on the phone. And my response was, we're not doing that right now. You're not crying. Stop crying. That was my response. Okay. And I'm not sure. It was because... Are you, are you recommending that we say that to our patients? No, 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 no. Okay. I'm you saying know, that... I might say I that was, to one of my children. Yeah, I'm in a different context. But I'm saying that like for that particular patient and for that particular person that I was dealing with, that's what they needed to hear, yeah. right? And then like three three days later, somebody else cries and it's, listen to me, you, you've got this... There's, you know, and it's a completely different level of compassion, right? And it takes a certain level of communication to understand which one of those it is. And I'm not saying you're saying we're stop crying, but (laughs) there are ways of assertively saying like, listen, 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 I know this seems scary, but right now where you're at, you you have it way better than most, you know, there's a way of reframing it essentially. And different people are going to require different things. Um, so that is a very difficult question actually to answer. Uh, I think it's really dependent on a, a certain person's level of or, or ability to communicate. You'd be surprised what I've seen over the years, like of surprised the and I think spectrum you mean of communication. Disappointed. Yeah, well, no, no, not not necessarily. I mean, I have seen... I have seen interactions where, you know, doctors are a little bit more cold and direct and they're not so, they don't have a ton of empathy, but they just have a level of authority and power that the patients respond well to. But then they get that one person that needed that empathy and they're like, I I, I hate that guy. Right. Yeah. So like communication is way more dynamic yeah. than people give it credit for, which is why sort of the empathy style is just, it's going to work way more effectively. But you need to marry empathy with empathy and listening skills and all that with authority. I don't, I don't want a doctor who's going to sit there and go question, oh, really? Okay, interesting. Okay, interesting. I want interesting, 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 interesting. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. This is what we need to do. Yeah. All right, Blake? This is what we need to look at. We're going to do this test. We're going to do that test. We're going to do this, blah, 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 blah. 
We're going to see what it is in two weeks. I'll be in contact. Great. I'll talk to you later. I'm like, okay. He listened. She listened. I was heard. And now there's a treatment and course of action. So it's that powerful shift from listen, listen, listen to this is what we're going to do. But if you're not given the cues that they've exactly. been listening you're the not, whole time, you're not going to come away from that thinking, I'm on board with this. Because right, it you, didn't lead up exactly. to the authority. The authority wasn't supplemented with that empathy and that understanding. And I think, and, I think for the, that crying patient, it makes sense, at least you know, from, from a basic level, and I think this could be universal, is just acknowledging it. Like, this is really hard. Like acknowledging that they're, right? Being present, being there, acknowledging what they're going through. I'm sorry, this is really hard, right? Yeah, and acknowledging it. And giving them time, giving them, giving them yeah, time yeah. To, to, to process it. And also connecting them to reality is really important, right? So, you know, as, as non-doctors, we're not looking at illness and disease the same way doctors are looking at. And sometimes a sheer explanation of the reality of our symptoms can help sort of ease that anxiety, right? So we want to listen, but we still want to know. And it could be the other way around too. I mean, you know, sometimes the news isn't always good, right? It's yeah. not, well, it's yeah. hard. And that's, that's what's tough. Then you need a plan, right? Like mm-hmm. let them process. And then this is what's going to happen now, right? Like, like you said, with the authority, this is what we're doing next. We're going to get a scan. We're going to get a biopsy. We're going to like, yeah, there's nothing like a professional. This is any type of professional in and outside of medicine with a plan. We want to know people have plans. If all of a sudden someone's fixing your house, you're like, yeah, I'm going to play around a little bit and see what I can do here. You're like, okay. It's like, all right, step one, what I'm going to do is I'm going to check this. Step two, I'm going to check this. Step three, and I'll let you know and we'll see. Like it just, it's way more effective. Here's an etch-a-sketch of what it's going to look like. Ah, I dropped it. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, you don't, want that from yeah, your, yeah. Uh, you don't want that from your contractor. <laughs> um, yeah, so- you definitely don't. So let's talk a little bit about receptive nonverbal communication because we've we've really been focusing on expressive, which I think is easier, right? Because you could yeah. you, you practice it with your friends, you remember to do it in the office, and your you develop what is yours for you. It works for you, right? This level of touch mm-hmm. works for me. This level of touch doesn't. But receptive nonverbal communication, and this is something actually that one of the other uh, physicians on Twitter pointed out is she called it cultural humility. So okay. we're talking about is really, you know, what works for us in the American medical system. I'm sure I have my share of international listeners, but, you know, I think the majority are in America, maybe some in Canada, a couple in Australia. Mm-hmm. But, you know, cultural humility, humility, because if we're trying to interpret someone's cues, nonverbal cues, and they're coming from a different culture, or maybe even a subculture within ours that we're not familiar with, we might be misinterpreting things. So I think the focus really should be on your own expressive nonverbal communication because receptive, and, and you were alluding to this, right? Every doctor is different. Every patient's different. Every situation is different. So it's really hard to just say like, yes, furrow your brow. Yes, squint your eyes. Yes, like, because it's going to be different. I think it's important to mention the, the importance of cultural, it's not cultural competency because you can't, it's cultural humidity, just recognizing what you don't know. However, right, do you have any recommendation, now that being said, now that I've just added that disclaimer, for receptive nonverbal communication? For, for what, you know, what should we be looking for in general? I don't really have many specific questions in this arena. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I think that the culture excuse, I'll call it, when it comes to nonverbal behavior is 
a lot less of a thing than people think it is. Really? And yeah. And, and, and just for some context, so I spent the past three years traveling extensively across the world. So I, I was sort of like this, um, I ran my business remotely and I spent a lot of time in Europe and Asia and Southeast Asia and just was, was bouncing around a lot. And you know, there are fundamental themes of emotional states that are pretty congruent. There's what I think differs from a societal norm standpoint is the willingness to show those themes, right? So for example, if we talk about like anxiety and we look at anxiety across the spectrum of different cultures, the manifestation of anxiety is the same. It's just certain cultures are not willing to show that anxiety, but there's still subtleties that that anxiety is there is what I'm saying, right? So like some of the cultural norms that are related to her processing behavior, I, I, I honestly feel that in a, I think the biggest concern would be like, I don't know, maybe certain, certain questions are taboo or certain things you shouldn't be asking or like those kind of things. But I think from a, a, a recognition perspective, I can't imagine there being that much of a difference. However, I do know there's a big difference between how we perceive and how we understand authority across spectrum. And that would be important. I think the best people for this... So let's say your practice is moving. The best people that understand cross-cultural norms and the differences and changes are uh, certified translators. Those are the people you speak to. So if you're ever dealing with, I don't know, let's say some sort of weird case where you have to go work in Japan, which is probably the most, Japan is the most fascinating culture, in my opinion, just because it's so different from Northeastern sort of New York style of communication. Let's say I was going to Japan. First thing I would do is talk to a translator. Like tell them because they get it. We have access to them, right? We need them. Yeah. Like I frequently have to put a translator on speakerphone uh, in order to communicate. Well, not that frequently, but but. It's something we have we have easy access to. So I guess enlisting them to make sure that we're picking up on the behavioral cues that we should. Yeah, they're very good. Because I, I literally have had interactions where I'm like, listen, what do I need to know about like behavior? Is there any like weird or different things? And they go, oh yeah, let me explain. Like authority, da, 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 da. This happened when I was working with a, a Chinese company. It's just like completely different the way you demonstrate respect. It's not like a Northeastern style of demonstrating respect. It's a very polite, very- a Firm handshake and a hard a, squeeze, yeah, which is- Yeah, it's a lot of acknowledgement. out the window. So I wonder how that's going. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's, but it's just a lot of vocal, like, thank you so much for having me here. Kind of, you know, there are certain norms yeah. that exist in different cultures and they can be phenomenal for that. But huh. I don't really think it would, I don't think it would matter. Like, cause think about the context. Like, if you're in a practice in New York City and someone's coming to see you that doesn't have the same cultural stuff, like, it's well, understandable. Something like eye contact, right? If they're from a culture where, I, where you're not supposed to make eye contact with someone in authority. Yeah, like you might. Yeah. That might be. That's a big that's one. What we've been talking about, right? That might be interpreted as by by me as disrespectful because they're not making eye contact. But and there I am making an yeah. assumption about them. I guess the the problem with this stuff is is I'm always juggling two things. For example, I'm I'm, under, I'm juggling the theoretical concept of this and then the application. So what am I going to do? Like have a list of the top 50 things in different cultures and then you're going to remember that the one... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like it's one of those things where I... Like of all the things that you are going to work on, understanding cross 
cross-norm sensitivities from a cultural perspective is probably not the thing unless you're a traveling doctor and moving from thing to you know uh, culture to culture or you open up a place in a certain area of Queens and you have a certain demographic that's coming to you like that's when it's really going to be important I, I wouldn't want you to anybody listening to this to focus on it if it wasn't a direct need basically yeah, yeah. that's 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 an excellent point there was one more question that I that I wanted to get to about receptive nonverbal communication, at least within the context of, of our culture, and that would be recognition, right? You mentioned it, understanding. So an in-person visit where someone has their mouth covered, also telehealth where we might not be able to see them so clearly. So for in-person, what am I looking for to see if the patient really understands what I'm saying versus a lack of understanding. What, what cues am I looking for? Mm, this one's trickier. <laughs> okay. So this there might not be an, there might not be an answer, right? There might be. Yeah, you know, I mean, there is an answer. Different. And, there, there, and that's the thing we find, right? So, like when it comes to teaching this skill set, we find that the answer is take these interactions, lump them up into five to seven different ways people communicate they're being heard and expose you to hundreds of samples of video where you get to see those things. Then you go, ah, oh, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I see what, I see the theme here. It's kind of like if I showed you a bunch of videos of someone being awkward, you would quickly understand what an awkward situation looks like. To answer this specific question, I would say that first and foremost, I think it's really important to do follow-ups vocally to see how people respond that like like literally saying is that clear like does that make sense like do you understand that like being able to say that i don't think that's done enough and also that creates the trigger point in which you'll be able to see meaning it's very difficult to like actively pay attention and sort of look for these things you don't want to play a guessing game so you can have a conversation and then like at the point of when you ask that question you want to ask that question and then you want to look for some sort of vocal response or you also want to look for some sort of behavioral response. Because a lot of people will say, I think it's also helpful to be like, are you sure once in a while? Because it's kind of like this. If I say, Brad, you okay? Like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm doing okay. It's like, are you sure you're okay? And they're like, last night was, you know, the kids yeah. kept me up. I didn't sleep. And I, I think that kind of follow-up can work if there's not some sort of clear overt sign that they understand what is being heard. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, if you push that too hard, it could come off as patronizing. And I think to that point, spinning it to your responsibility as the physician to make sure that you've explained it. So like, do you understand? Right, right, is right. very right. different from have I explained that well? Because do you understand me? If they say no, then it makes them feel like there's something wrong with them. But yeah, understand. Am I I explaining that well? Like, no, you're not. You are not explaining that well. Now the person doesn't have to feel like there's something wrong with them that they're not understanding you. So I think spinning that question and making sure to say that that's in that specific way, and then looking for that those suggestions of understanding. And this is also it's also tricky just because I feel that there's such sort of an authority style norm that exists in a patient doctor for so many people that even if even if your language is right people just like listen to the doctor you know what i mean like that's kind of the style that a lot of people will and then they'll leave the office and think ah i'm not sure what that what you know what i'm saying what just happened yeah yeah like what just yeah, like, like uh, they'll just they'll just like nod their head and be come like by themselves uh, like like coming without your spouse to the doctor as a male patient 
And then you come home to your wife. What yeah. happened at the doctor's visit? And what happened? Yeah. It was fine. Oh, well, Everything's okay. Fine. That's, that's not what happened at all. No, no. He said, or she said, everything's okay. <laughs> no, I mean, that's kind of the dynamic that creates that, right? Yeah. And this is another thing that boils boils down to like just understanding what your individual communication styles like, how good you are at perceiving behavior. Put it this way, the better you are at reading behavior and modifying your own behavior, the more emotional and social range you have. So the more tricks and more things that you can do. So that's why it's a two-way street. You got to be able to understand and you also got to be able to emote and communicate. Yeah, that's something that when I started working on it, when I started working on like being more present, it started to bother me more when people weren't present with me. Right. Like that's something that my wife and I both talk about because we realize that like, like if someone's, I think, you know, before I started working on stuff like this, but like before the podcast, because this is, this is a lot of what I like to talk about. You know, if someone was like scrolling through their phone while they were talking to me, I probably wouldn't have minded it as much. But now like, oh man, it just makes my head explode. So like to your point, right? It's that, it goes into other parts of your life and you keep practicing it, then you get better at doing it and you get better at reading it. And you just have to keep, it needs to be, you have to be mindful of it. You need to be mindful of your own cues, which makes you mindful of other people's cues and then just get better and better at it. Yeah. It takes active work like anything else, right? Like it takes active work. And I really believe that it's an area that you know, some, some schools are, are teaching this now, but not a lot. Like it's not, it's not a standard approach. I, I know, I think Cornell has a, um, they have like a lab, NYU has a lab, like they're interested in recording doctor interactions and doing all that, but it's, it's not standard. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Like we were talking about before the show, just getting through regulations in order to, like, if you're a doctor who wants to see what they look like when they're talking to patients, if you're part of a big institution, getting permission to record the visits and permission from the patients, running it by the legal department, and what do you do with that file afterwards? And that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be really challenging to, to do all that. And if it's not a genuine patient interaction, like if it's like the actors that they have medical students working with, it's, I don't think it's, it's just not going to be the same. No, but, yeah. but you can definitely, you can definitely tell. Like I can, if I met a doctor with like a low level of upper facial animation or a weird, a weird smile timing or something like that, like that's going to be in there. There's no way they're not doing that in social interactions and then doing it in a uh, doctor patient yeah. interaction. Yeah, yeah. Right. So there's certain like signs no matter what. Uh, but yeah, I think that it's something that needs to be looked at a lot more, especially if, I, th- I just think for across the boards for also think about your patient You know how good it feels to walk out of a doctor's office. They, and you're not like thinking about like, should I trust that? Should I not trust that? I don't know. They're kind of weird. Were they not listening? You know, you feel like a sense of resolve. It feels like, okay, there's nothing wrong. Like yeah. when I walked out of the eye doctor and they told me that my eye wasn't damaged and I'll be fine in two days and come back Monday if there's any problems. It was just this amazing relief. Because like, what if I lose my eye? <laughs> you know, this is irrational. It just falls out. Is it going to fall out? Yeah, what if, what if my eye... I mean, I'm text messaging an eye surgeon. She's like, Blake, you're, you're not going to go blind, but there's, there's some complications that you should just go. And I'm like, okay, thank you. Thank yeah. you for giving me the context on why I should take care of this, right? So I think that's so, so, so important. You know, anxiety and stress, those are... Those cause a lot more illness too. <laughs> so you can be a catalyst in reducing that. Absolutely. Let's wrap up with just one point. Like, let's say you get something in your eye, you've got a rash, you slice your hand cutting an avocado. 
you're going to the doctor. What's one thing that is important to you as someone who is an expert in nonverbal communication that they exude? So the one big takeaway from today that you're just really hoping that this one doctor does. Aside from, you know, stitching up your hand. I weight the listening and authority piece very, very, very heavily. I'm also a pretty good patient in the sense that like, I will ask questions in a way where I'm not like that annoying, but they'll be like inquisitive and interesting, like just checking about this, but I'm not annoying. I know how to like strike that interesting balance, but I need to think that there is a plan for me. I, I hate when doctors rush. Uh, can, can I just end with one story about this from my real life? Sure, absolutely. Okay, perfect. So I I had something on my arm. It was like a, a growth, right? Uh, and cancer is really big in my family. Both my grandfathers died from it. And mom breast cancer, just everywhere. And I had a weird growth on my arm, and I go to my primary doctor, and I'm like, "Hey, uh, I'm just wondering, like, about my arm." And he looks at it for literally, it must have been less than a second. And he says to me, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And I was like, literally just like that. It's nothing. And I was there for something else. Right. And I was like, okay. Like, and this was when I was a little bit younger and not as assertive as I am now and didn't understand the medical community or anything like that. I didn't, I didn't work in medicine. So I was like, okay. So I go home, I'm looking at it. I'm on, you know, PubMed and I'm on everything. I'm like Googling things. Like, I don't know, this this kind of meets the A and B of ABCD of skin cancer. Like, I don't know. So I make an appointment with a dermatologist and it's annoying because I have to go through him, right? So I have to get a referral at that time. I didn't have the same kind of healthcare. I don't know, I don't know my father's healthcare. So I get a referral from him. His office approves it. I go to the dermatologist. Dermatologist sits me down. I ask the dermatologist, say, listen, I'm concerned about this thing in my arm. First thing he does is takes his little wheelie chair and moves in closer to me. Second thing, he holds my arm in his hand and he takes out like this little magnifying glass and he looks through the magnifying glass and looks around at every aspect of it. Then he maybe spends like seven to 10 seconds really looking at it, pushes it, prods it, whatever. Then he pushes back in his chair and he says, okay, and explains to me what it is and what's the, and just really makes me feel absolutely incredible, right? So this, I walked out of that, I'm like, I love it. I don't have skin cancer. I feel amazing. Now this doctor eventually became a friend and somebody that I confide in personally. And I said to him many years later, I was like, listen, you knew in one second that there was nothing wrong with my arm, right? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, then why do you spend seven to 10 seconds? He's like, I was just being a little bit more thorough. But I was like, you knew in the first second, right? That it was nothing. He's like, yeah, I knew, but I just wanted to be thorough. And I was like, wow, just that extra seven seconds of being thorough and really looking like you care because he actually did care completely changed my concept of this person. I bet and he I've was sent squinting him so too. many clients. Oh, he was squinting, he was looking with this. <laughs> then he explained to me, he explained to me like the ABCDs of thing, but really showed me like what what something that is cancerous looks like versus what's not. He gave me a little bit of education, which made me feel empowered. It made me feel heard. It made me feel empowered. And I and I felt like, okay, this is not something that I can that I worry about. Where the other doctor was like, you're fine. Just yeah. trust me. Same answer. Same answer. Same answer. Same yeah. treatment. Different same delivery. S- yeah, different delivery. And it meant, it, meant all, it meant all the difference. And I think that is what is the key takeaway of sort of this podcast or this discussion is being able to actively integrate that style 
of communication with your patient. Empathy and authority. Yeah, and being heard, empathy and authority. I think good. So we always look at social interactions. We try to sort of break them down into continuums or themes. And I think the big theme for medicine is authority, empathy, and also somewhere about like active listening. Like when those three things come together, you have a very powerful interaction. And I think there's often a lot of authority or sometimes there's not. I've worked with doctors that are not, they don't have enough authority. They're incredible clinicians, but they, they're just not, their tone, the way they deliver stuff. And you're, you're left like, uh, like am, I, am I dying or not? Like, yeah. which one is yeah, it? Don't, don't end each statement with like a question. Like, oh, question yeah. your and, voice. And also you, my little hack is, you know, I, you know, I do this, right? So like I, I tell every, every time I go to a doctor, like, oh, so I'd be like, I'll throw out what I do in some sort of weird way. I'm like, oh, you know, I analyze behavior. I work with a lot of doctors. And some of them are like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. And they get really involved. And some of them just don't give a shit. <laughs> they're, like, <laughs> they're like, that's nice. Put your head on the table. <laughs> <laughs> and I find it interesting and, and sort of the balance between that and that, how people reciprocate. Like, what Come on, doing. at least it's, pretend. It's just fascinating. Pretend. Yeah, at least, at least pretend, right? Like, and it's like, hmm, interesting. You're not interested in how you're communicating. I'm, I'm interested by that. So it's, it's cool, but it's, it's a whole deep world. It's a rabbit hole, but it definitely makes sense to work on this skill set. I had uh, Scott Dickers on the show a while ago who was the founder of The Onion, like the, the comic magazine, oh, and he wow. teaches people Great. how to be funny. And I said, well, what do you want from your doctor? Because the whole episode was, was how, to be, how to be funny as a doctor, like funny yet appropriate. And he said, don't try and be funny. I'm the funny one. Just laugh at my jokes. That's all I uh-huh. want from you. And I feel like that's that's kind of what you were you were getting at. Like I, I told He's you right. what yeah. I do. Like I gave you an in for an interesting conversation. Like just take it. Take as you're examining me. Just take it. Take it and use it. And I think that's that's important too. Like recognizing that the person that's sitting in front of you has this whole life, and you. You lobbed it to them and they could have easily hit a home run by going, that's really interesting. Tell me more about it. And it would have been great. And it would have been great. And that's all you needed. Like it's, uh, yeah, there's so many interactions and just bring it into your life and it'll be easier to bring it into your practice, right? So be more present, be more, you know, there's uh, one of the doctors I work with that was really struggling with authority. I had him uh, negotiate something every day for 30 days. So he had to, like, he went to, he was, he was a doctor in New York City, he lived in Midtown, and he would, like, go into a deli, and the bottle of water would be 150 and he wouldn't have to negotiate it. He'd be like, listen, all I, all I have is a dollar. Like, will you take a dollar? And it, what was fascinating was just to see, and he had, like, physical anxiety when I, I did the first five with him, and it was, like, physical anxiety. Like, he was, his hands were shaking. It was, like, really afraid of confrontation and, and, and really was just not used to that. It was his comfort zone. And over the course of 30 days, just one every day, he first, he like made like $3,000 in savings. And then he started to really see what his authority and what his power looked like. So I always recommend things like that, right? You don't want to try this on your patients. Try it in your day-to-day life and you'll see how it can carry into your actual interactions. Maybe, maybe not in my marriage. But yeah, no, not, put not my foot. Well, also, down. I, honestly, like your your spouse or your partner. I mean, they are some of the best at being able to tell you what you're doing and what you're not doing. Yes. They may not be. They may not be 
the best at giving feedback because they usually have a lot of meaning attached to that. Like, oh, you just don't listen. Like they have their own story and concept about you, but they will really know your little weird things. Like, so it's like, what do I do when I'm not listening? They'll tell you exactly, oh, you you break eye contact more, you start checking the phone a little bit, blah, 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 blah. Like they're wonderful resources. So if Mm. if you're really looking at your presence, I, I I would sort of enroll your... Uh, your significant other to sort of help you understand what those gaps in your communications are and what your like tells are. What do I do when I'm listening and what do I not do? Yeah. I, that's, I think that's a great point. That's a great yeah, point. But like just how do you know when hear, I'm really listening? You have to be, you have to be okay hearing that because you're not trying to pick a fight. This is uh, oh no, no, you're trying, you're trying to better yourself. It'll create a lot of cohesion, right? Like who yeah. doesn't want to be around somebody that wants to know those things like it, yeah. it's powerful. Yeah. 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 I don't have to ask in, in my marriage. I don't have to ask. She just, <laughs> she just tells me <laughs> oh, God. it works out well. It works out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Well, this, this has been great. Tons of actionable advice that are going to help us turn those uh, one-star Yelp review patients into, into five-star patients. And we'll have a lot more people that are be taking our advice because why do all that studying and why uh, work all those hours if people are going to leave the office and go, you know what? I'm I'm not so sure about that. But if they're going to take the and advice one because you thing, said it with authority. You just said something I got to bring up. So you said one star and five stars. So I have this big rule that I follow. And it's basically, I don't pay attention to one star and five star reviews because the one star people are crazy and the five star people are often crazy. What's really valuable is the threes and the fours. The threes and the fours will tell you a lot because a lot of them, you'll, you'll read it like, well, the interaction was great, but yeah. boom, 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 But boom, the front boom, desk boom, staff, boom. That's, that's a lot uh-huh. of times where those, but like those, yeah. oh God, those four-star reviews, I'm like, couldn't you have just, come on. Like, couldn't you have just given yeah. me the five? We were so close. Yeah, really? Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's more of a dig than the one. Like to your point, right? Because the one star, like a lot of times it's stream of consciousness. The grammar is not great. Like clearly this person was like, on a tirade and just like, you know, slam the keyboard. But and that whole review star, system is Yeah, flawed. I mean, that's a whole, that's like the a whole, whole episode. That's a whole flawed. podcast series yeah. for, for itself. But, but, you know, you make, a, you make a good point. You got to look at the twos, threes, and fours. So Yeah, those are very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you, you taking the time to do this. Uh, it's a hugely important episode, especially now that we're all, all behind a mask. And this was great. So thank you very much. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. Next up, we're combining two episodes that together form one of the most impactful discussions we've had on this show. On episodes 206 and 207, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. B.J. Fogg, a renowned behavioral scientist and author of Tiny Habits. Dr. Fogg's approach to creating lasting change through small, manageable steps is not just revolutionary and it's practical, it's deeply resonant brass tacks advice we can start giving our patients to help them take their medications and live better lives. BJ Fogg, PhD, founded the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University. In addition to his research, Dr. Fogg teaches industry innovators how human behavior really works. He created the Tiny Habits Academy to help people around the world, and interestingly, the Tiny Habits Academy long preceded the Tiny Habits book. He lives in Northern California and Maui. His first book, Persuasive Technology, Using Computers to Change What We Think and Do, foretold how computers could be used to influence our behavior, and even testified to the FTC about how this could be used to the detriment of the public. Clearly, his warnings weren't heard. And this was over 15 years ago. 
His research then turned to how humans can change our own behaviors and in December published the book Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. His behavior research reminds me of the history of vitamin C. So the treatment of scurvy with citrus was discovered by a British barber surgeon around 1600. But citrus fruits didn't become standard on British vessels until about 200 years later. So you can make a discovery that should change the world, but a lot of the work comes in disseminating that information, and Dr. Fogg discovered the keys to changing behavior through changing habits. So for those of you on medical school faculty, this should be a class in medical school. This should actually be taught in high school or even before that. But until then, as physicians, this information is critical, not just for lifestyle changes that can help patients eat better, move more, and smoke less, but even applies to checking their blood pressure and taking their medication. His book kind of reminds me of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. After you hear it, you realize it makes so much sense, and you wonder why you weren't doing it already. The reason is, is because popular wisdom with regards to habits is wrong. Guilt and shame are destructive. There isn't some magic number to starting habits. People don't start habits by feeling badly. They start habits by feeling successful. And we're more likely to be successful by starting a habit that is small or tiny, that we actually want to do. And the third key is a prompt that reminds us that it's time to do the behavior. This is part one. Part two will be out next week, so stay tuned. He was kind enough to already offer another interview. So if you have any questions, please email me at brad at physician's guide to doctoring. He can be found at bjfogg, that's with two g's, dot com, and tinyhabits.com. So you're a surfer, so hopefully you'll get the reference here. Uh, there's this movie my, that my wife and I love, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and yeah. there's a scene where Paul Rudd's, Paul Rudd's a surf instructor and Jason Siegel is kind of down on his luck, and, and so Paul Rudd is teaching him to surf. And every time he pops up, Paul Rudd says, do less. Pops up, do less. Pops up, do less, until Jason Siegel is just lying on his belly, and then he says, <laughs> well, now you're not doing anything. So, and I, I feel like that's an analogy between that and how people might interpret tiny habits. So yeah. why is that not the case? Why is it different than yeah. doing, you know, lying on the surfboard versus just getting up and riding that wave? Yeah, I love that reference. It, it's really two things coming together at the same time. Number one, it's not just doing small things. It's doing the right small things. In other words, elegance. Uh, the way I think about it, what's the smallest thing with the biggest impact? And yes, when you're surfing, you don't want a lot of uh, extraneous movements going on. You just do the right small things. And in fact, here in Maui, that's kind of, yes, you can catch the waves. But part of it is to be so graceful and so minimal while you're riding the board doing cool things. So it's like the right small things. That's one factor when it comes to habits and the tiny habits method that I'm sure we'll get into is how do you find that? The other thing in the tiny habits method in my research is just acknowledging and recognizing that motivation fluctuates over time. And Brad, what was so, what's so strange about the research on motivation historically, I mean, there's been social scientists studying human behavior systematically for let's say hundred years, maybe 80 years. There has not been a rich tradition of looking at how motivation fluctuates over time. That's a relatively new construct in the literature. And I would peg it about 2007, where the first studies emerged and it was in language learning, like, oh, students' students' motivation in the classroom goes up and down during the period of the classroom. So it's 
And so it's sort of like, so without having a solid history, a tradition of understanding that motivation goes up and down, that's a huge blind spot. And so in Tiny Habits, that's, and in my work, that's fully acknowledged. It's like, even though the moment your patient's meeting with you as a doctor, that patient's super motivated and she or he will think they can do anything, but guess what? few days later, it's going to drop even maybe after they walk out the office. So the only thing you can do when your motivation is low is things that are really easy. You can't do the big things anymore. So tiny habits is hacking or tapping into that reality is that your motivation won't always be high. And the way that you be consistent with a habit is you make it super, super easy to do. So that it doesn't get derailed by your fluctuations in motivation. So number one, elegance, the right small things. Number two, just face reality of being human is your motivation is going to fluctuate. This wasn't exact. I didn't exactly include this in, in the questions that I sent to you, but I think that ties in well to like even taking antibiotics, right? Patients yeah. frequently do not finish their course of the antibiotics. Well, they start off taking them because they're super motivated because they feel like crap, right? You've got a urinary tract, infection, you've got a sinus infection, you are uncomfortable. So you're super motivated. But by the end, you're kind of feeling better. So you might forget. And so so that I think we can go into the fog behavior model because that 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 applies well that applies to everything but but in this there situation so many, <laughs> there are so many exciting things to talk about right within that question wow where should we start uh, guide me there's just so many so well what's the fog behavior model let's talk about that okay. it looks Bam. like an equation not total not not yeah. as an equation so, so it turns out i wouldn't have known this believed this even 20 years ago there is a very simple way for understanding all behavior of all people and all cultures and so on and it goes like this a behavior happens when three things come together at the same time. And I write it out as behavior equals. It's not really an equation. It's a model. So behavior happens when motivation to do the behavior and ability to do the behavior comes together with a prompt. A prompt is a reminder or a cue. When those three things come together, the behavior happens. If any one of those things is missing, the behavior doesn't happen. So if M, A, or P is zero, yes, it's not a model, but you can think of it this way. If M, A, or P is zero, then the behavior is zero. So that, that's the way to understand behavior really is that simple. And it maps to all types of behavior, all ages, and so on. Now, in the world of behavior, you have one-time behaviors, like uh, make an appointment with your doctor or get trained. You've got like antibiotics, a fixed-term behavior. I call that a span behavior. And then you have ongoing behaviors like, oh, you're going to take um, this medication forever. And then you have stopping behaviors. So within that, within the broad world of behaviors, you've got all the way from habits to stopping habits to one time, and B equals MAP applies to all of them. So I think with the that antibiotic example at the beginning, M is very high because you're motivated. A, ability, you're swallowing a pill. Like, fine, for some people, they have difficulty swallowing a pill, but that's always going to be easy. Although there are some ways you can make it even easier, right? Yeah. Uh, and I've, yeah. I've heard, you know, it was in your book, I've heard you talk about another podcast where, you know, you, you want to keep it in a place where it's super accessible, right? Make it even easier. Super easy, yeah. And then the last one is is the prompt. And I think this is the key. Because that's the part that we usually leave out. It's the part that may not be as intuitive 
as as the other two, right? So yeah. the prompt telling you that it's time to do it. So for someone taking antibiotics, maybe tell them a, a specific point in their day when they can do it. Yeah. You know, it, in all of my work, it's all a system. I love systems. I love, and and it's not like an artificial system. This is how behavior really works. And over the course of 10 years, I've uncovered the system. And then I articulate it in my book, Tiny Habits, and in the trainings I do and so on. So yeah, motivation to take now with motivation to take the antibiotic drops to zero, they won't do it, even if it's easy and there's a prompt. So there's got to be, you know, some awareness and I'm not a doctor, but hey, guess what? You're damaging the future potential for this antibiotic by not completing this, right? So, and not all patients know that. Do all patients care about it? Let's hope so, but they may not. But there's other ways to sustain motivation through that what is it, two weeks that you take an antibiotic, something like that? Yeah, could be okay. anywhere. Then ability. So even if the motivation drops, if it's super easy, like you're saying, like it's right there in the counter, you don't have to open anything, or then boom. And then the often missing piece is the prompt. What's going to remind you to do this? In Tiny Habits, like every part of behavior with prompts, there's a system behind it. One, you can just rely on people just self-prompt which is a bad idea, like just suddenly remember. Two, you can have people use what I call a context prompt. And that's really common. That's like post-it notes, alarms, have your husband remind you, and so on. And then three is to use an existing routine to be your prompt. So every time you start the coffee maker, that becomes your reminder to take the antibiotic. Now, if it were, if this were an ongoing habit that people do forever, Brad, then using a context prompt is great because then you just figure where does this new medication behavior fit into my existing routine and you don't have alarms and post-its. But for something that's fixed term or one time, then yeah, having an alarm or a post-it note or something like that is okay. So one of the points here is all behavior comes back to motivation ability prompt, but it depends on the behavior type and how you design successfully for that. Designing for a one-time behavior is very different than designing get a habit to happen. And this middle ground around a fixed term, like a two-week behavior, that has characteristics on both sides. And so what's exciting is to see it all comes back to this motivation ability prompt, but then it's like tinker toys. You assemble it differently depending on what the behavior type is. I think anyone who's been to a hospital knows that alarms don't really work well in the long term because you hear all this beeping going on that's being ignored. So yeah, it it just becomes white noise after a while. Uh, Are there any prompts that you've come across that also kind of like the alarms might only work well in the short term or or not work at all? Ones that we should, that maybe our patients might say, oh, you know, I could use this. And as it turns out, aren't great ideas. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much I want to share. I, I guess I would have people think about it this way and we can go deeper if you want. If, I mean, if it's a temporary behavior, then, you know, using an alarm is fine. But if it's a habit, absolutely do not use an alarm or a post-it note because you'll become blind to that. And the times when the alarm goes off where it's not convenient, as opposed to something very specific in your tune, like pushing start on the coffee maker, you might do that at 4.30 in the morning. You might do. You might sleep in to 5.35 or you might sleep into 9 o'clock. But there's a point every morning 
where you probably start the coffee maker. And then it's like, oh, after I start the coffee maker. So it's, it's this very, not only does it not annoy you with all these post-its or alarms, but it also adapts to whatever's happened to your schedule that day. And this is one of the hacks in tiny habits is don't use external reminders, figure out where it fits and find what it comes after, you know, look at your existing routine and where does this new habit naturally come after? And if you find where it fits quite naturally, it just is seamless. It's like you just plug it in to your this, then this, then this, and boom, you're off and running and habits can that's one reason that habits can form very, very quickly in the tiny habits method. I think the surfing analogy works. I actually surf on Long Island. It's not, you know, they're like four foot <laughs> waves, maybe if there's a hurricane, but then I'm not out there. But I think the surfing analogy works there too, right? Because it just seems effortless. Like the people that really know what they're doing, you look at them on their board and they're so relaxed and they're so, and everything just runs so smoothly. Yeah. So if you can find it, integrate it into a place where it then becomes effortless, it's really hard to, to ignore that prompt. Yeah. And you, you make the distinction between like the trailing edge of, of the yeah. prompt and the prompt itself. So you wouldn't make it like after you you're, when you're drinking your coffee, because that's a long span of time. It's something right. very specific. Like you push the button on your coffee maker. So it has to be, or it works better when it's a specific prompt. When it's very specific. Yeah. So in the tiny habits, there's a, a format that we call a recipe, tiny habits recipe format. So it's after I start the coffee maker, I will take my medication or after I brush my teeth, I will floss one tooth. And, and what you do is you design that recipe and if it works, you keep going. If it doesn't, you redesign. Now, often it won't work if this, what we call an anchor, it's the existing thing you do. If you say after breakfast, I will take my medication. What we've learned through our research on tiny habits is that is so ambiguous and fuzzy. It's like at what moment in time is after breakfast? So you use the term uh, that, and thank you for that. So you find the trailing edge. So you look at your breakfast routine and say, what is the very, very end of breakfast? Oh, I start the dishwasher. Okay, then that, rather than saying after breakfast, I will, you say after I start the dishwasher, I will you know, feed the cat or whatever it is. And even the slight shift like that can take a habit design from not working to working. And that's part of what we teach in the Tiny Habits Method and the Tiny Habits Coaches is look at people's recipes and help them. Re and that's why I called it a recipe rather than a formula or a template. I decided to call it Tiny Habits Recipe to give people, hopefully, permission that you revise it. You revise it to work better for you, just like you would a recipe. And I think giving people permission to do that, right? Because typically, the typical tropes of exercise more, eat better, move more, right? That we're all trying to do do more of. There's all this guilt associated with not doing it. So I think by describing it that way, you're also giving them permission. Like explore, see what works for you. The first couple of times you do it, it's not that you're going to have to refine this. Like you're giving them permission. So maybe you're also cutting down on some of that negative talk, that ne that's negative self-talk that, that yeah, comes along a with it. It's a radical shift in mindset. 
uh, the tiny habits versus the old way. So just to be really clear, <laughs> it's going to be controversial. Most of, and I've had physicians come work with me at my boot camps and stuff. And I remember some from Kaiser Permanente after the first day, they were like, oh my gosh, BJ, we get one class in medical school on this. And this is what we do all day, every day. Thank you so much. We need this so bad. So kind of, Thank you. That validates my entire podcast because that is <laughs> that is the point of my podcast is everything that we should have been learning but didn't learning didn't learn. And yes, the understanding the metabolism, understanding fat metabolism, and memorizing all the enzymes not nearly as important as actually being able to help someone to institute change. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things, bad news and good news. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is what. Our Western culture says about behavior change, what you see in magazines, most of it when it comes to behavior change is wrong or it doesn't work or it only works for people who are already going to CrossFit, okay? Unusual people. And so one of the best things you can do is just try to forget all of that stuff and don't apply it. Guess what? You don't have to actually set goals to change behavior. You don't actually have to be accountable to change behavior. Those things can help, but you don't have to do those things. The good news is I've condensed what actually works. And let me give it at the highest level. And then we can get down, if you want, into some of the details. At the highest level, here's what, if you're helping people design for lasting change. So again, within the world of behavior, there's all sorts of behavior types, creating habits, lasting change, ongoing engagement. I'm going to use those as synonyms. There are two keys to that. One, number one, help people do what they already want to do. So help your patients do what they already want to do. If you don't do that, it does not work. You you all know this because you've been there. Next, help people feel successful. And if you do those two things, you've got a really great chance of creating lasting change. If you miss on either one, I guarantee the change will not last. So what you can't do is force people or somehow manipulate people into doing things they don't want to do. That does not work. And number two, so I call these maxims. That's maxim number one, help people do what they already want to do, which is like 20 years ago, I would never believe that would be like so important. It's massively important. It sounds like something Yogi Berra would have said. Right? <laughs> it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a truism. You can get people to do what they already want to do, but it- Yeah, but surprisingly, they're not already doing it. So yes. you help people do what they already want to do. And the maximum number two is help people feel successful. And those two things together, I mean, that's the secret sauce for designing for lasting change. Now there's techniques to do each one well, but that's what you're shooting for. So any change program that is not doing those two things will not work to create lasting change. So you can just use those as lenses or litmus tests of here's this change program, here's this thing, will it help me in my life or my family or my patients? And just, and that's why setting goals sometimes does not help people feel successful because by setting the goal, especially if it's ill-formed, all they do is feel unsuccessful. I'm not achieving my goal. That's why accountability is a mixed bag because for some people to report in, I miss this, I miss this, it's not helping them feel successful. Now, for some people, it will, but I just want to call that out, that it's not about these techniques like uh, accountability buddy or don't miss two days or whatever. It's these high-level principles that, and it's not only for your personal 
behavior change or your patients, every product or service. So part of the teaching I do is for people that are creating products and services to change behavior. Everything that's gone big and lasted over time does these two things. You know, so uh, Instagram, helping people do what they already want to do, helping people feel successful. And one of the founders was one of your students, right? Yeah, one of the co-founders is in my class. And wow. the idea for it came up in my class. And this is before I had all the dark sides associated. It was very uh, earnest and uplifting concept yeah. in the early days, for sure. So yeah, just a but, way to share share yourself without without all the baggage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah so it's a nice idea. If people listening to this don't remember anything else, in fact, it's more important than my behavior model. It's those two concepts. And I'll just translate. Help your patients do what they already want to do. Help your patients feel successful. And I think it's important to make distinction also between what they actually want to do, not what they want to want to do. Right? Because if they're (laughs) someone who wants to want to exercise, but they don't actually want to exercise, they're they're not going to do that. So you have to, you know, start from a place like pick an activity that they already enjoy that might not be exercise. It might be gardening or dancing or something along those lines. Like, what do you enjoy doing? Like, when you're starting that conversation, what do you enjoy doing? Not like, what's your favorite workout routine or, you know, absolutely. And that is so important. And I know that takes time during a clinical visit and there's some ways to compress that, that I think we'll get to, but yeah, for sure that now, sometimes now we're going to like level. So my work is modular and there's ways that I think about it in modules. So I'm popping up to the 300 level. Sometimes there's a behavior they must do like take a medication that they don't love taking the medication. So you need to align it with an aspiration that is very, very meaningful to them. Like by taking this medication, you will be here to see your granddaughter get married and walk down the aisle. But ideally, to your point, Brad, is find an exercise they already love. So they love surfing and they love roller skating, and that helps them also be healthier. But if you can't do that, and you make really clear the connection between taking the medication and something that's deeply meaningful to them. So you had mentioned uh, the your flossing experiment uh, earlier, <laughs> which which I actually had brought up to my dentist. I didn't even realize it was it was well before the book came out. I didn't even because re- I had been hearing about your research for for a long time. So I told my dentist, you know, what if you told your patients to just floss one tooth? What if you told? And she said. Well, I just tell my patients to floss if they don't want their teeth to fall out. Yeah. So that, yeah. you know, that I think harkens to the older way of thinking of like, it's their responsibility. It's not my responsibility. Like they can, here's the antibiotic. I'm giving you the tools. Um, you can do it on your own. Yeah. So this is, I think, a little more metaphysical question. Like, why is that? Why doesn't that approach work? Why doesn't yeah, I mean, eat better or you're going to die work? Well, let me map it to the behavior model, and then we'll get into uh, things that are a little more conceptual. So the the tiny habit recipe of after I brush, I will floss one tooth. What it's done is taken flossing and it's made it easier to do. So it's taken the ability factor and made it so easy that even when my motivation is elsewhere, I can still floss one tooth and I can still feel like I'm the kind of person who flosses. The hygienist or the dentist, I forgot what you said, result like, oh, just only floss the teeth you want to keep. That's a motivational approach. 
So notice the difference here. And this is kind of the old school of thinking. Even the phrase motivate behavior change, where people think that's all encompassing. No, you can facilitate behavior change. You can prompt behavior change and motivate behavior change if it's a one-time action or temporary, but not for habits because over time our motivation shifts. So that will work. She or he can effectively scare a small percentage of people into doing it because like, oh my gosh, but human nature, just human beings, our motivation goes up and down. And then we have these motivations to do other things. Like in the moment that, you know, morning, we're getting ready for homeschool, my kid's screaming, I can't floss my teeth right now, right? Because we get motivated to do other things. So it's just not And so in the book, Tiny Habits, I call this the motivation monkey. And I'm sorry to monkeys because I love monkeys, but there wasn't a good another alliteration phrase for that. I was going to call it motivation monster. Motivation marmoset doesn't work quite as um, well. Maybe we'll do that in the paperback version. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just unreliable. You can't rely on high levels of motivation. And that's part of just what I acknowledge as a researcher and then in the Tiny Habits method is you want to be reliable doing a habit, don't rely on motivation. Design it so it doesn't require much motivation. One thing, Brad, let me add this. But then in tiny habits, you can always do more. You don't just stop at one tooth. If you want to do all your teeth, terrific. If you want to do 20 push-ups rather than two, terrific. So you you set the bar super low, and that's all you have to do is one tooth. And anytime you want to do more, you can, and you think of it as extra credit, And notice the shift there. What you're doing is you're helping people feel successful. It's like, man, I flossed all my teeth. I'm a superstar. I'm an A-plus student, right? So by setting the bar low, you're setting people up to feel successful, which then, and we measure this week after week in Tiny Habits, helps people change their identity. Oh, I'm the kind of person who cares about my teeth. I'm the kind of person who can follow through and change my behavior. I'm the kind of person who achieves, which would not have happened if the bar were high. That happens when people feel successful. So there's so many, they're subtle. And once you just look around your life, what your kids do and so on, you'll see how these principles play out. But it goes so against the traditional wisdom, the old way of thinking about behavior change. I feel like everybody is is waiting for the epiphany right? (laughs) Everybody is waiting for that moment where they're going to be like that person on the cover of the magazine that suddenly had a mindset shift and they were a different person. And, 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 uh, you know, there's a movie, I think, on Netflix about a guy who goes across the country blending all of his food and showing everybody how they should juice or something like that. But he had like an epiphany. He had a moment and we're all hoping that the next thing. And so I, I have patients like that right? Where I might recommend the tiny habits methodology to them, right? I might describe the the fog behavior model, but they're like, no, 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 I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And so they're so motivated. It's time for sure, Brad. This is going to work. How do I, I don't want to deflate their balloon, right? I don't want to take away from that motivation, but I also don't want them to end in that feeling of shame and failure that seems to keep happening and yet the process keeps repeating. So how do I convince them? Perfect question. And and there's so much in my book, but this is not in my book, okay? So good question. I call this a dual track strategy. The dual track is, yeah, if they want to do something big, you let them. 
Let them knock it, try to knock it out of the park. But oh, and by the way, let's just do this tiny thing. And by doing this tiny thing, you're going to learn the skills of change. And yeah, it might seem insignificant, but let's do both, right? So yeah, you don't want to make them feel like you haven't heard them or you're being unresponsive and they're super eager and just say, yeah, give it a shot, but also let's do this tiny thing. Um, and just, you know, get you to tidy one thing or to eat, you know, this healthy snack or sometimes just floss one tooth or do one wall push up. And in that way, you get both at once. So you do a dual track strategy and most people will absolutely fail on the, what I call a big leap. Uh, but if the baby step is designed well, if it's designed with the tiny habits method, they'll succeed on it. And when they come back, like, oh, you know what? My walking two hours a day didn't work. I guess what? I'm flossing all my teeth and I'm great. And I've done. Oh, and by the way, thanks to that, I'm doing a lot more, you know, because so, that's how it works. These 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 tiny successes open the door to lots more. And I, there, there are two reasons I really love that. One is you, you mentioned the identity shift. And so when you have that identity shift, you can be like, you know, you start thinking about yourself differently, like a runner. Why does a runner run? A runner runs because they're a runner, right? And so then they find time. It, it, running doesn't need to be a habit because they look for opportunities to do it. So once that identity shift happens, I feel like everything else becomes, becomes so much more smooth, right? Yes. And from the beginning, the tiny habits method, when I launched it, I was playing around with my own behavior for a year in about 2010. And then I was like, this is so easy and so effective, crazy. I'm going to start sharing it, which I did in 2011. And as I was in this five-day program, and it was free, and it's still out there, and it's still free, and it's better than it was, because I, we have a weekly meeting on it. We always try to make it better. But from the beginning, the program really was about increasing people's confidence that they could change their self-efficacy. But I don't talk about it in those terms. It's like confidence. And so the first... Of, evaluation question. So people do it Monday through Friday and then they evaluate how things went over the weekend. The first one is about how confident do you feel, you know, about change. And that's what I looked at and optimized the program for. In other words, I didn't care and still don't care. Like the first time they try tiny habits, I don't care what habit they pick. It's just like, if I'm teaching you to play the piano. I don't care what your first song is. It might be Mary Had a Little Lamb. Because you're going to step up and do bigger and better things. The first thing you do is just a training ground. You know, you're just learning the basics. So pick whatever you want. But what I do, what I do think is very, very important in the program that's optimized for is to change people's perception away from, oh, I can't change to, oh my gosh, I can change. I can follow through. I, I can create habits. And that is a general quality they can apply and we see in our research, they apply it to all sorts of, I mean, that's where you change people. Whether people floss or not is a minor thing. But when people start thinking, I'm the kind of person who can change, I'm the kind of person who can follow through, that then opens the door to transformation. I have to put out an apology to all the dentists that might be in the audience. Flossing, he didn't mean that. Flossing is important, guys. Flossing is important. No, it important. is. Okay. Like, I, <laughs> I am like, I am like, you know, because if you can learn to floss, using the tiny habits method, you can apply that to everything else. So in the book, I talk about flossing. It's a common example. It's a, it's a, it's a really good thing because it really, there's some motivation there, but it fluctuates. Ability, you can make it easier. 
And then there's a very clear, natural context prompt, which is brushing. Flossing is like the poster child of tiny habits. And if you floss, you're probably also the type of person who makes their bed. And you're probably also the type of person that has a clean desk and has an organized schedule. And I feel like, you know, you like you said, you start thinking about yourself differently. It seems like almost a, a back-end way of altering negative self-talk, which we see a lot of, right? A lot of people have these, these uh, they, they have these negative things. I think the saying is, if you talk to your friends the way you talked about yourself, the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends. And so you're then, by making them, increasing their confidence and their ability to change, the self-talk has to follow. Yeah, and and Brad, that in sharing the method for the first, I would say, 2,000 people. So now it's, I stopped counting at 40,000 people after about eight years. So in the first year, 2,000 people, there was a woman who wrote me back midweek, she was three days into the program, it was Wednesday, said, oh my gosh, BJ, you've changed my life. I now see I'm the kind of person that had endured a lifetime of self-trash talk. And thanks to you and thanks to how Tiny Habits positions things, I've recognized that. And now I'm saying good for me rather than self-trash talk. And that that is that shift is so important. And we don't leave it to chance in Tiny Habits. That's very deliberate. I didn't know that going in when I was first teaching it. It was, took, her name actually was Linda, but in the book, we changed it to Rhonda because Linda is my sister, a different Linda. So it would have been confusing, yes. Confusing. So in the book, she's called Rhonda. And that was a huge moment. I, I can remember, I'm getting chills talking about this because I can remember exactly. So I was, you know, I coached through email. So I'd coach two to 300 people per week through email, very labor intensive. And I'm exactly where I was sitting and looking at it and just going and recognizing that just, it just dawned on me, this is where people are at. This is not the kind of people that are around me at Stanford and Silicon Valley. And that's not really how I grew up. This is a normal person. I am not normal. The people at Stanford are not normal. And then from then on, I read and interacted with people understanding this is where they're at. They're beating themselves up. They're feeling just so inadequate. And that's why throughout the book, I say, well, at the very beginning, I say, if you've tried to change and failed, it's not your fault. You just weren't given the right system. And throughout the book, it's like you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. So feelings of guilt and shame are not helpful. They're not part of, you can set those aside. So you embrace and you help yourself feel good about even the tiniest of successes then when things don't go as you'd intended, you just let it go. You, you just don't ruminate on that. And that shift, and then people actively learn how to give themselves positive feedback rather than the self-trash talk. And that just that just ripples out to so many other aspects of your life. It's just, if there's just one thing I could wish that my work, I mean, if only one thing, it would be that, that people are nice to themselves that they stop beating themselves up and they acknowledge their successes. And I'm using all those as kind of the same thing in different words. It's just that, that in some ways, that's what the subtitle's about. Small changes that change everything. That is, it is a small change, but it changes everything when you view yourself differently and your inner dialogue is different than it was before. Is paleo the best diet? Is keto the best diet? Should I be recommending intermittent fasting? And I think all that dogma is really aimed at like the 1%, right? The 1% of the population that is already 
already exercising, already fit, and they're trying to get fitter, already doing these things. But that's not our patients, right? That's not who we really need to help. We need to help people make these small changes that then accumulate over time because they're also, you know, to your your point, they're stickier. These big changes are just not, unless you're the one in a million that, that has that epiphany. And so that other maxim of yours is help people, you help people by feeling, getting them to feel good. And there was, there was an article in, in the Huffington Post a few years ago about uh, there were a number of patients that felt they were fat shamed by their doctors, right? They, they, they find every doctor's visit onerous because whatever they're coming in for, the doctor inevitably makes it about their weight. Then they end up feeling bad. This authority figure has made them feel bad about themselves. So your maxim is help people to feel, feel good. Successful. Feel, successful. feel successful. Feel successful. Feel successful. Yeah, that's very carefully worded. Well, l- let me... Let me say something kind of controversial. Are you okay with that? Yes, please. Bam. Okay. So these programs that you talk about, and then we'll get to fat shaming here in a minute. The programs and the covers and the bloggers uh, who are misleading people are, I think, being evil. I'll just say it. They're being evil. And I'm struggling a little bit with my own ethical responsibility of calling those people out. Okay, because they're misleading people or even like and when I read about this, see this TV show or see this article, I I just cringe. It's like, no, this will not work for everyday people. And in fact, there is a book out that is now sold over a million copies, huge, huge seller that on the cover claims to have a proven way to break bad habits on the cover. In the book, he doesn't deliver that, but the book is sold massively. Now, a million people have been misled about breaking bad habits, they've been let down and now they're blaming themselves. So, and you can easily find this book. Now, do I, as a researcher, step up and say, no, people, you've been misled. Do I raise awareness that this is misleading you? And this person that wrote the book is incredible at marketing and he continues to do this. But I have a book and people are going, oh, you're just, you know, you know, this is because you have a book. Well, no, I think I have an ethical responsibility. So I'm kind of stuck right now. So it's, yes, we have uh, things in the media that people pay attention to because it is the dream, but it's unrealistic. We've got bloggers writing books, deeply misleading people about things that matter so much and damaging them. And then... Ah, what do I do about that? So, Gal, if some of you have insight, let me know. But now you know how all of us feel every time there's another coronavirus YouTube video or article that goes viral that is just full of misinformation. And then, you know, all our patients are bringing it up. It's on social media. We're constantly having those conversations because it's what people want to hear. Like I've got this easy fix. And as much as your point with tiny habits is you're doing, you're, you're, helping people do what they want to do, and you're making them feel successful, it's still small habits that accumulate over time, which is not the same as the epiphany moment that it's every, your magic. life is going to change tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and it's not magic. It is yeah. a process. And I'm very careful in the book not to say be patient, but guess what? Be patient. It's like planting a garden because I learned that nobody wants to hear be patient, but I say it's a process. It's a process. Like, out here, so here in Maui, I do have a garden. And the fact that we're going to be here for a long time because of coronavirus, it's like, okay, I'm going to be a little more serious about my garden. And, you know, you just do what you need to do with the seeds and the sprouts and replanting them. And you know you're going to have the result. 
You cannot force it to grow. It's not magic. It's a process. And you just do the right process. And that's kind of what Tiny Habits is. Though people are looking for that quick fix miracle. And that's what this blogger guy knows is put the right phrase on the cover and he'll sell millions. But back to fat shaming, that is, I kind of use that as an example in the book a little bit. The I don't have like a magical answer for that, except go back to the maxims. I mean, this person in front of you, and this really helps me. I, you know, I'm not a medical professional, but I do help a lot of people, whether it's my students or just, you know, just even helping one of my Stanford students progress. It's here's this human being. What do they already want to do? How do I help them feel successful? And as long as I'm doing those two things, I feel like I'm on very solid ethical ground. Now, I don't manipulate people. I don't tell them fake things about them to make them feel successful. I think what is the most, and this might be really helpful, what is the most positive, true thing I can say to this patient about their health and how they're managing the health? Even if, and this might be controversial, even if that leaves undone or unsaid something else, and because I haven't done research on this, but my sense is you are helping that patient way more by pointing out the most positive, true thing, rather than saying, guess what? Your weight can be a real problem, right? Because once they feel like I'm succeeding and I can change, they will then step up and do the bigger and harder things. That's the process. You, want, can, you can unlock that in them. Would it make sense to maybe then sidestep that issue? right? Sidestep something that's as emotionally charged as their weight, because it's not like they don't know it, right? They know it, they're reminded of it every moment of every day. So maybe find something else that they want to do to teach them the tiny habits method. And then that starts the snowball effect, right? Then they, they changes their self-talk without the flashpoint oh, it's about my weight again. And then you're alienating them, right? They're not necessarily going to trust you as much as they otherwise would because you've brought up this thing again and you're just one of them. Yeah, and this is so, I don't work with obese or morbidly obese, but I have coaches I've trained in Tiny Habits. So we have about 200 coaches who we've trained thoroughly and some of them do work on weight issues and they affirm that's the approach. Like even when somebody comes to them and says, I want to lose weight, it's like, great, we're going to first work on what do you want, creativity or tidiness or relationships. We're going to start somewhere else. And then they learn the skills of change. They learn the tiny habits method. And then when they are more prepared, having these skills, then they step up. It's just like, oh, we're going to play all these little simple songs on the piano. Once you've mastered more skills, then we're going to step up to Stairway to Heaven or a concerto or something like that. And so that ends up, my coaches tell me who work in this, exactly the right approach. And it's surprising to their clients at first. It's like, wait, what about my diet? What about my exercise? Like, no, 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 don't worry about that, right? We're just going to help you in some other areas. Pick the area of your life that you want to optimize. Is it tidiness? Is it relationships? And so on. And it's absolutely true that change leads to change. If you help people start changing in one area, they then are much more capable of changing in these other areas that are more emotionally distressing. And they struggle with it for so long. And the thing about a physician or any provider or anybody in a position of authority and expertise. So in toward the end of the book, and I didn't want to put this in, Brad, because it's so powerful, but then my editors read it in some of my notes and like, 
you're putting it in. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this can be totally, this could be bad because people like, so, so there's this thing, the most powerful feedback you can give somebody has two characteristics. It's on a topic they care about and it's in an, in an area where they're uncertain. So let's say a new mom is with you in clinic. She's cares about being a good mom and she's uncertain. So that overlap. And so in the book, I draw these two circles, that overlapping area, any feedback you give that mom is going to be super powerful. So if you say like, wow, you're doing a great job as a mom, she's going to go home and brag about that. If you say, man, you just really, there's a mom class, a mothering class we want you to take. She's going to be crushed. So that's that. And so I call that the power zone, that overlap. Now there's one circle I didn't include. And that is the source of the message. So it's really three circles, like Venn diagram, the source. If the source is trusted, then it's even more powerful. And physicians are that. So I hate to make your clinical visits even, it shouldn't be more stressful. I'll put it this way. You have more <laughs> opportunity. The feedback, the, po the positive, true feedback you give your patients may be Certainly, it'll be the best thing they hear all day. It may be the best thing they hear all month or all year. They'll remember it. So your physicians and other people in authority and other people that are highly trusted have this opportunity to help people feel good about themselves. And that's a great opportunity to do. So, you know, what's the most positive, true thing you could say and say it? There's something also that can make people feel good that you discuss in your book. And I, I can't believe we haven't, uh, I haven't brought it up yet, but working at Stanford, uh, you have access to write some of the top minds in the country. So you took advantage of that and invented a word, right? <laughs> I, I've invented a few words, but I think I know the word you're talking about. Yeah. So, and I, so that ties into help people feel successful, but not, but, but it, it helps to encode the behavioral change, if you can get people to do it. And I am the last person in the world to do the, the celebration technique that you described, because I just don't have that. I dial my enthusiasm up for the podcast, but I'm just, I'm more of like a wallflower. I don't, I'm not a celebration type person. Yeah, I'm not a fist pumping type person. Here. I think I can help you. Okay, Please. so let's start with the word and remind me how exactly I'm going to help you. I think that'd be the answer. And I wish I'd put more of this part in the book. So the feeling, so first of all, it's not repetition that creates habits. And the people saying that are misleading you. Just look at the research they're citing. It correlates with strength of habit. It does not cause the habit to form. Bam. And this big million selling book gets it wrong and lots of people get it wrong. But just go look at the research. Even reading the abstract shows you it was a correlational study, not causation. And it's always a different number. It's 12, it's 28, it's 99, it's 10,000. It's always a different number. So yes. So that, that, yeah. That's one of the big, and it really changes how people look at habit formation process if they believe it's repetition. But I won't go down that thread. Instead, I want to go down this one about the, the thing that does wire in habits is the emotion you feel when you do the behavior or immediately after. In other words, it's reinforcement. and you know this with your dogs, with your kids, with using a new product that you love, like you use a new app and oh my gosh, it makes you feel awesome. Guess what? You know, it's much more likely you're going to use that. And that idea that emotions create habits is so important that I made it a chapter title. I didn't want anybody to miss that idea. And it's radical. But again, it's sort of like this 
you know, hidden in plain sight. Once you see it, it becomes obvious. But it turns out that, well, the academic world of emotions right now is a mess. They can't even define emotion. So I won't go down that rat hole. But the emo- there's various emotions that can help wiring habits. Pleasure, relief, uh, uh, humor. But the one that you can hack in yourself is the feeling of success. There's in, in tiny habits, we call it celebration. There's ways you can say, I did a good job. And that feeling of success is in the tiny habits method, what you use to uh, supercharge the speed of habit formation. And the better you are at feeling successful as you do the new habit, like flossing or doing push-ups or you know, feeding the cat, the faster the habit will form. Now, I stumbled across the technique in my own life. I didn't read all the literature and say, oh, therefore, here's what we do. It was, it was a happy accident. And then it was years later, I was like, okay, I know this works. I know it works for other people, this technique, but I don't know why it works. I have a sense. So I dug into the literature and this is the only part of the book that isn't based on my own research because I'm not an emotions expert, but I'm one, one building away at Stanford from the world's expert in this. So I gave him a call and uh, said, here's what we're doing and here's what's working, what's going on. He's like, straightforward. It's reinforcement. You are upregulating a positive emotion. And through that, you are reinforcing behavior. And I was like, and that's what I thought. Because I got in the weeds studying all this, you know, neuroscience and all this complicated stuff. And, and that emotion, that feeling of success, I kept reading that I called other emotions experts does not have a name. So we're getting to your question, Brand. It has no name. It had never been named. And so after calling uh, four, who I think are world-class experts on emotions, they were very nice to talk to me. And one of them is a huge fan of naming emotions. I said, okay, we get to name it. So the name of the, when you feel successful, you do something like you pull something out of the oven and it smells awesome. You see you got the top score in an exam. You put a long putt and it goes in. That emotion is now called shine. Shine is the name for the emotion of feeling successful. So to maxim number two, helping your patients feel successful, you can also think about it helps your patients feel shine. And I love the fact, well, I was surprised there wasn't a name for it, but I love the fact that now there is a name for it. And we can talk about design for shine and that shine is the thing that if people don't feel shine when they do a new behavior, it does not become a habit. It does not. But if they feel it intensely, it will become habit very, very quickly. And that's also for bad habits as, as well as good habits. It goes both ways. So what are some examples of celebrations that can help you feel shine for like a, a curmudgeon like me who's not going okay, go to want to do a little dance or fist pump <laughs> or he's going yeah. to feel ridiculous doing it? I love this. I, lo- I love this question. So in Tiny Habits, I talk about this. There's exercises for it and there's a hundred different ways to do it. But the curmudgeonly approach is to think about a purpose that's very, very important to you and align the behavior you're doing with achieving that purpose. And let me give an example. For me, it's very, very important that I teach my work about how behavior change happens. I mean, that's what my life is about, not just my career, my life. And so if I can't pour a glass of water you know, as a habit of drinking more water and go good for me or do a little dance or give myself a high five. If that feels hokey, then think by pouring this glass of water, I'm going to have more energy 
and more optimism, and I'm going to be a better teacher today at my lab meeting. So you align it. So notice that's still helping you feel successful. You're not doing it in some showy way. You're just connecting that behavior with succeeding. And I'm getting chills again because it's so important. With succeeding in something that really deeply matters to you. So it's that connection of here's this behavior and here's my higher purpose. And actively think of that. Actively think of that as you do the thing you want to become a habit. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a bodily movement, although that is a simpler thing yeah. for for us to recommend to our to our patients. But think think about the the goal that they're working towards, or or the effect that it's going to have, and yeah. that positive feeling of working towards that effect, yeah, and, or and that outcome. And yes, and and I'd phrase it or think about it as more than a goal. It's like, what is my life about, and how does this new behavior that I want help me achieve that. So I, now, one of my colleagues, Vic Strecker, who's at University of Michigan, this is his thing, his purpose. And it was two years ago, he's sitting on a, my lanai right here in Maui, and he's talking about his research and the brain imaging studies. And I was like, crap, Vic, this sounds like celebration. And so that's what tuned me into, oh, here's a different way of celebrating. And it's a little more rational and it doesn't require cheerleading or, you know, singing a song and and it still maps to the importance of shine or helping people feel successful and so it, it, it totally fits now what's coming up soon uh, i'm hoping we launch within two months is a study that looks at these different kinds of celebrations and compares the i don't even have the wording yet for it but the uh connection to purpose compared to other types of celebration and seeing how, and this would be a true experiment. That's what I do is true experiments to see uh, the effects of that versus no celebration at all. So simplest study be through conditions, no celebration. Other one, they pick a celebration. So the way to pick a typical celebration is, you know, what if a piece of paper, I'll just say it this way. If you're watching a football game and your team wins at the last second, what do you do at that moment? That's a natural celebration that versus the connecting with purpose. So it would be no celebration, your natural celebration, and then a vivid connection with purpose and do a three-condition study and see what happens. Which one's most effective? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I love that you you tied in your methodology, especially since we're a physician audience. So we love to hear like how the experiments get set up so that you end up with these these findings. I would love to to talk more about your your research, like this, the studies themselves, though, I, I think will. And here's another study that I think is even easier, so we might do it faster. It's when the kind of habits coach, coach. So people sign up for the five day program and then they get a coach and all this, uh, which is great. I, I'm saying all this like it's, it's a huge deal. We're helping hundreds, thousands of people a month and so on. One of the things that we want to do is get, give the coaches phrases that will help their habiteers, the habiteers are the people doing, you know, they're the novices, to re-think of themselves in a new way. So instead of saying good job this week or good job on flossing a tooth, it's like, good job. You're showing evidence that you can change. Notice that tiny little addition. And what we want to come up with is a list of phrases that are not just positive, but they're positive and they have an implication for an identity change. It helps you go, yeah, 
wow, my Tony Abbott's coach says, I'm showing evidence that I can change. And then I want to compare that, you know, just a regular good job way to go with coaches who then use the identity shifting phrase and see the difference. So that is uh, another study that uh, hopefully is coming soon. So I, in your book, you refer to the habit ninjas. Now I grew up (laughs) in the eighties. So I think I would have referred to them as habit Jedi and of the habit Jedi, you are, you are the Yoda of the habit Jedi, right? (laughs) So is there anything that the Yoda of habits is working on right now for himself, right? You mentioned some of the things that you, that you've done in the past in your book, but is there anything that you're actively struggling with for yourself to, to integrate into? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, the way it feels from my perspective is, you know, when you, behavior changes a skill, it's a set of skills. And I map those out in the book and the, the more skilled you are, the easier it is to do stuff. And so think of it in some ways like driving. When you first were learning to drive, it was scary. It seemed hard. Now you just get in the car and go from point A to point B. You don't even think about it. Well, that's what it feels like once you develop the skills of change. It's like, oh, I want to do this. Boom, boom, done. It's like no drama, no big deal. You may not be perfect. And that's part of the method. It's like, oh, I've got to make some adjustments. Just like you're driving someplace, you might take a wrong turn and you get back on track. But there are some habits that are challenging. And let me share one. So but before I get to the challenges, but that means I've transformed my personal life. I've transformed my health. I'm much healthier than I was 10 years ago. I live in Maui at least half the year. Now it's full time. I've transformed my career, which is on and on. And it's not like any big moves. It was just a whole bunch of little things I did that got me here. And I don't often talk about that. And I certainly don't post on Instagram or Facebook because I know it just makes people unhappy to hear that. But that's what can happen. Um, I'll get to a specific habit that has been a challenge and it's using the foam roller for myofacial release. <laughs> really that need you need to integrate. That feels so good. It's such uh, positive reinforcement in and of itself. I need to reconceptualize what that pain means. Oh, but, right. Okay. You use, it, you use it differently than I do. <laughs> yeah, that is challenging because, and I know it because it's painful. I don't like it. Now I do it. Oh, I would say half the time, but it's not totally wired in as a habit because it's painful. So things that are painful or embarrassing or make you feel less than do not wire in as habits, no matter how many times you repeat them. So the foam roller, what I do now, the habit is to take the foam roller and put it on my couch. (laughs) So then when I'm hanging out with my partner watching TV, I look at the foam roller and I move it. Or I use it, and some days it's like, okay, I did my habit. I moved, you know. The, so the habit is putting it on the couch, not foam rolling. So uh, will it then evolve into a habit where I'm always foam rolling? Maybe not, because it's painful, and those kinds of things don't become. Now you can get yourself to do it, but a habit is something that you do automatically without thinking, and we don't do that with painful things. So that's one that I continue to play around with. Meditation is also a very challenging habit, but I was, I'm able to nail it, but it shifts for me. Uh, at one time, meditation habit came after I emptied my inbox. I would meditate for three breaths because that was, I looked, Brad, I looked for probably a year. Where does this fit in my life? And finally, weirdly enough, it's after I empty my, not my inbox, that's after I empty my spam folder. 
Then I meditate. Oh, okay. <laughs> Empty my inbox. Right? I am never officially never meditating. Yeah. yeah but, but then it's it's shifted. And then well, when you're look then when we came to Maui, I'll go to the recently, like when your location shifts, your habit shifts. So when I'm in California, it's one thing. Here in Maui, I play uh, a flute in the morning. We get up really early, like 4.30. So I close everything up and I play the flute. And for me, that's a meditation. And then last week that shifted. I've just gotten kind of fascinated with my heart rate. So I have one of these, you know, oximeters that you put on your finger. And now for the last week, the meditation is to just watch my heart rate and kind of breathe in alignment. And so that might become, and so... I think this is a good example of how do a habit and it can, it can evolve and that's okay. I mean, think of your habits as a garden. You don't always want the same thing. So you evolve it to serve you more and more. And then someday I may be back to the, the flute meditation and, and so on. And it's, it's really, it's really exciting actually to know that your, your habits will evolve you don't have to do something just because years ago you said you're going to like meditate after you empty your spam folder that it will evolve as your needs evolve and that's the right way to think about habits well this has been an incredible conversation i really appreciate you taking the time you're in beautiful maui right now thank goodness the uh the hurricane you know avoided the (laughs) avoided the island everybody's okay um so where can people find your book and where can people find your ongoing research? The book was in airports. You're probably not going to airports. It was also in Costco. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, just you know, buy it at your usual places. If you can buy it at a local bookstore, that's great. Yeah. The audiobook has a special preface where I talk about my voice disability. So I have a special preface there and some people have really liked the audiobook. Yeah, that's what I did. I heard I heard it was it reminded me of uh Brene Brown, right? Vulnerability. You started with just this thing that really human right because you're now this this Yoda of habits um <laughs> where where the stars have aligned but you you show how it all started with with struggle. The struggle I had as uh, as a teenager. In fact, Brad, when I wrote that, you know, so I recorded, you know, I did the narration and I wrote this uh, the last day in the studio here, and I went and I read it to my partner, and I was like, uh, "I'm going to read this to you." And I just started crying, and I cried three different times. I just broke down, and I was like, "I need." And then I was like, "Okay, now I can show up at the studio and read this, and maybe I won't cry throughout it." But yeah, sharing that was a big risk for me, but I think it has helped a lot of people see Absolutely. that despite how how much you feel like your body is against you or the chips are stacked against you or that you are stuck. There are ways to get unstuck and it doesn't really make sense in the print version. because I'm talking about my voice, but yeah, people can get the book tinyhabits.com to do the free five day program or to find out about how to get, you know, deeply trained and certified in this physicians more and more attending my boot camp, which is 16 hours of training. That's tiny goes above and beyond the book. In fact, this morning I had two physicians on a call and one of them, it was kind of sad and funny that, and he's from Ireland, got a great accent, where last week he emailed me and said, oh my gosh, I now see for 20 years, I've been doing exactly the wrong thing to help my patients change. (laughs) And he's on a mission to just at least change what's going on in Ireland in that regard. So the bootcamp might be something, you know, bjfog.com and I'm on Twitter and 
I'm on Instagram, but I don't do much. People follow me. I have no idea why they follow me. But <laughs> but it, the usual places, you know, BJ Fogg's a nice weird name. And so you can find me in lots of places. And it's F O double G. F O G G. It's a nature name. I'm so glad it's nature. <laughs> so well, thank you again. I really appreciate you. I've been I've been following your work for a long time and I really the book is incredible. And the physicians, if there's anyone listening who's involved in a medical school curriculum, you you have to include this in the curriculum. This, this has to be taught. This oh, has to end up. Thank you. Brad, you doing this and helping physicians in this way is so important. Thank you so much for inviting me and keep up the good work. And finally, we're looking back at another two-parter that tackled a sensitive yet crucial aspect of patient care. In these episodes, we had Dr. Stephanie Sog, a clinical psychologist with deep expertise in weight management. Her guidance on when and how to discuss a patient's weight is invaluable. These conversations are critical and can either earn a patient's trust and help them take steps to lifelong change or alienate them from the healthcare system. I hope you'll learn a lot from this. I know I did. First question is, can people lose weight and keep it off? Because if the answer is no, then it obviates the need for the rest of this right. discussion, right? There's no point in discussing with patients how to go about losing weight or if they even should consider it if it can't be done because it's a common thought that it just nothing works. So first question, can people lose weight and keep it off? So there's not a simple answer to that question. I'm going to do my best to answer it. I think you sort of have to qualify the answer to that. How much weight? How high was the weight when the person started? Obesity is a distinct metabolic state. And obesity changes the way the body regulates weight and favors defending a higher weight. So once someone has reached the level of obesity, which we define as a body mass index of 30, or we define as a certain percentage of body fat, waist circumference, what have you. But once somebody's in that state, it becomes harder to lose weight. And if you're asking me, can someone go from a BMI of 50 to a BMI of 25, which is the upper level of a healthy BMI, scientifically, statistically, it seems to be very difficult to do that. If we look at is it possible to lose the amount of weight that has been found to help reduce health risks and weight-related complications of obesity, which is 5% of your initial weight to 10% of your initial weight? Can people lose that much weight and keep it off? Yes, they can. It's hard to lose weight and it's harder to keep the weight off than it is to lose it because once you've lost weight, then you're in a different metabolic state that is fighting to try to get back to that previous weight. But that kind of weight loss is possible. And larger weight losses are certainly possible. And it is possible to keep the weight off, especially, you know, our most effective treatment for obesity is bariatric surgery, what we now call metabolic and bariatric surgery to acknowledge the metabolic impact of the surgery and the metabolic mechanisms of action of the surgery, but it takes a lot of work and it's difficult because human biology is just programmed and really evolved to defend a higher weight. And there are lots of 
redundant biological mechanisms in place to keep us from losing weight and few or none to prevent us from gaining too much weight. It's the end of another busy day. You just saw 20, 30 patients, maybe more. Instead of heading home for dinner with your spouse or playing with your kids, you now begin your night job, charting. Charting is critical for patient care, billing, and medical legal liability, but it steals our focus from our patients, eats away at our time with our families, and keeps us up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains all of us. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions for you. Charting is done before your patient walks out of the room. Wait, because it gets better. Freed learns your style over time. It's AI, just like a human scribe would, except it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by 3,000 plus clinicians from every specialty. It's HIPAA compliant, takes 30 seconds to learn, and costs only $99 a month. You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai, F-R-E-E-D.ai. Listeners of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring can use the code PGD50 for $50 off the first month. So it's hard, but it can be done, and your expectations need to be reasonable. There's a whole body of research that has been done regarding people's expectations of how much weight they want to lose and expect to lose. We'll ask people, for instance, who are entering a weight loss program, what is your ideal weight? What's your dream weight? What's your happy weight? What's the highest weight that you would be satisfied if you got down to that weight? What's your disappointed weight? Meaning if you lost this amount of weight, you'd be disappointed. And all of the research, regardless of what population it's being done on, shows that people have very unrealistic expectations of weight loss. And that if you look at what they can expect to lose based on statistics and based on whatever the method of weight loss is that they're embarking upon, most of them realistically probably wouldn't even get to the dissatisfied weight, much less the happy weight or the dream weight or the ideal weight. So the research shows that universally people's expectations and goals for weight loss are unrealistic. The good news is that research also shows that once people have been through a weight loss program and they've lost some weight, even though they rarely have gotten to the weight they hoped to get to, they are much more satisfied with that outcome than they would have predicted that they would be. So their disappointing weight isn't disappointing. It's not as disappointing as they would have said it would have been. Although I actually find sometimes, especially with bariatric surgery, that Patients move the goalposts. And when they talk to me before surgery, they say, oh, I'll be happy if I get to X weight. And then when I see them, they've gotten below X weight, but now they want to get to X minus 10. And we sort of talk about how to avoid self-torture and not keep moving the goalposts and not at all even think in terms of numeric weight goals. Something that plagues high achievers, right? This is a physician audience where we're all high achievers. We're like, You want to get to this goal, yet you're not satisfied once you've achieved that goal because now you've got this next goal. Like it's this balance of aspiring to be better, 
but also being satisfied where you are. Although one difference between that scenario and the scenario of somebody who has who wants to lose more weight is that there is a biological limit to how much weight they can lose. I oftentimes sort of say to patients, you know, you don't have a goal to be 5'10 if you're 5'8". That's how tall you are. And that's biologically based. And no amount of hanging from a bar by your hands is going to make you taller. Obviously, the degree of control over weight is somewhat larger than the degree of control over height. But I really talk to patients about not having numeric weight goals. And because you don't have full control over that and psychology research showing that when the goals that you're invested in are something that you don't have total control over, that's very discouraging and not great for your mental health. So I talk to people, look, the only piece of the equation that you can affect is what and how am I eating and how much am I moving? And especially I say this to patients after surgery, if you're worrying that you haven't lost enough weight, take a moment and review, am I eating reasonably healthfully most of the time? Am I following the 80-20 rule, which we can talk about in a moment? And am I getting enough physical activity? And if the answer is yes, you're doing all that you can. And it's important to let the worry about the number go. Are you going to be happier if you're 198 than if you're 200 just because 200 has two zeros after it? In reality, no. And your body may not let you get to 198. So you have to be satisfied with the journey, with the process, not the outcome. I know I'm exercising regularly. I know I'm eating well. I am satisfied with that, even though I'm not getting the outcome that I was hoping for. Well, you can't force someone to be satisfied or say, well, you should, or you have to be satisfied with it because they may not be satisfied with it, but there isn't anything else they can be doing. Yeah. So that's the piece. You drive yourself crazy if you're doing everything you can be doing and the outcome is not exactly what you want because by definition, there's nothing else you can really do. And then if you're not getting the outcome that you want, then you say, why am I even doing this to begin with? And then you go back to your previous habits. Exactly. I apologize that I don't recall whether we talked about this. You say exercise, I say physical activity because the word exercise has some bad connotations for some people. No, no, no. When I'm with patients, I usually use physical activity Right. since our previous conversation. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad I affected one person's practice. That's excellent. But this is a conversation I have with patients all the time because when I'm doing an initial evaluation, one of the things I'm looking at is what their physical activity habits are currently and what they've been in the past. And I will say, what are you doing for physical activity right now? And they'll say, oh, not a lot or not as much as I should. And then I will ask, have you had times in the past when you were regularly doing some kind of physical activity? First of all, people underestimate the amount of physical activity that's needed to have an impact on weight, which for most people is a lot. But they'll say, oh, you know, I went to the gym every day for three months. They'll say it didn't work. So I stopped. And I'll say, okay, when you say it didn't work, how are we defining something working? And they'll say, well, I didn't lose any weight. And that's when I say the research is very clear that for most people, physical activity is not going to result in a significant weight loss. 
So it makes perfect sense that if you were doing it to lose weight and you didn't lose weight, of course you stopped. It's hard work. It takes up a lot of time. That makes sense. What's really important is to take a look at what are the other benefits that physical activity gets you. And those are myriad and really beneficial and really important. So I'll ask them when you were doing physical activity four days a week, how was your energy level? How were you sleeping? And I talk to people about the impact of regular physical activity on one's ability to handle stress and cope with stress and concentrate. Also, not unimportantly, if you're doing physical activity on a regular basis, even if your weight doesn't budge, your health's going to be much better and all these other tangible benefits. So if you change your, and, and also I talk about the fact that physical activity may not help you lose a lot of weight, but it is absolutely crucial for preventing weight gain and especially weight regain. And I'll ask the person, when you stopped going to the gym, did your weight go up? Yes, actually I gained a lot of weight. And I'll say, so you said it wasn't working because you didn't lose weight, but if we define working as keeping your weight from going up, it was working. I try to point out lots of other reasons for doing it. And I actually had a patient today who was talking about the fact that the whole kind of enterprise of weight loss with quotes around it just made her feel resentful and angry. But we had talked about some behaviors that she had wanted to to go back to doing. And we were talking about independent from whether it has any impact on your weight. When you were doing those things, it felt good to do them and you felt in control of your life and you felt on top of things and you felt like you were taking care of yourself. And can we let that be the motivation, not the number of pounds that come off? One, one of the other interviews I've done is with BJ Fogg, who is a behavioral scientist out of Stanford. And he wrote this book on tiny habits. And one of my big takeaways from that is motivation tends to wax and wane with time, usually wane. A hundred percent. So when I've been talking to my patients about physical activity, I say, what do you like to do? What do you enjoy doing that's physical activity? And once you find a way to work it into your schedule, because there's a big barrier there, just finding time. Once you've found the time and you've managed to fit in your schedule, you're going to look forward to doing it because you enjoy it, not because it's means to an end. So it needs to be something that you enjoy because if you don't enjoy it, eventually the motivation is going to wane and you're going to stop doing it. Even if you do enjoy it, the motivation may wane, especially if you become busy. But you don't need as much motivation if it's something that you enjoy. Absolutely. And if it's a habit, you don't need as much motivation. The other thing, because sometimes the suggestion that there's any kind of physical activity that someone might enjoy might just seem outrageous to somebody, to one of my patients. So then I will talk about, okay, what do you hate the least? Or also, I'm a big fan of multitasking. I really, my favorite thing to do in life is to check something off of my to-do list. So I'll talk to them about Oftentimes, like I had an elderly relative that I would talk to once a week and I would always make sure that I would be out walking while I was talking to her because then I was getting my physical activity in, but also having this conversation or reading the New York Times on my phone while I was sitting on the exercise bike back when I used to go to the gym or killing two birds with one stone. I live in a city and I get a lot of my physical activity 
by walking to places that I need to go that I could be taking the train or getting an Uber or a Lyft. But, you know, I had a bunch of appointments today and I walked to all of them and I got my physical activity in, but I also got to where I needed to go. So I didn't have to choose between going to the doctor or the dentist and getting my physical activity in. I love it. I love it. The next question is, when is it even appropriate to bring this up with a patient? How do we even read the room and know if we should mention the possibility of weight loss? Well, that's a really good question. And I think that it probably depends on what the context is in which you are seeing the patient and what your specialty is and what the problem is that the patient is bringing to you. So If you're a primary care doctor, family practice doctor, your job is the whole patient and your job is looking at all of the different factors that are important for health and weight would be one of them just as much as sleep is. I I would like to see a world in which primary care doctors were haranguing patients as much about their sleep as they do about their weight. Well, I'm sure there's a trickle down effect. The better the sleep, the better their mental health, the more likely they are to not have as much of an issue with their weight. Yeah. Well, there's, there's direct and indirect relationships between sleep and weight. So, and weight regulation. So you're killing two birds with one stone there, which we've already established. I like to do. You had said to me in, a, in another communication, you're an ENT, correct? Yes. And so you're dealing with patients who have sleep apnea. And obviously, weight is incredibly germane to sleep apnea. And if you're dealing with a problem that weight is clearly related to, it would be strange and irresponsible not to mention it at all. But it is also extremely important to avoid the other extreme, which is to say, look, you got to lose weight or this won't go away. Or if you would just lose weight, it would be fine. This is an extreme example, but burned into my memory is a colleague of mine was giving a talk. She works in Canada and she was talking about a patient of hers who had been in terrible pain for years and her BMI was very high. And the doctors just kept on dismissing her and saying they wouldn't do x-rays. They wouldn't do imaging. They just said, you got to lose weight. Look, it's obvious. You're too heavy. You've got to lose weight. And she finally, after several years, went to a practitioner who did an x-ray and found she'd been walking around on a broken hip for years. So with pain, especially, even if it's true that losing weight would help the pain, You don't just not treat the pain and say, well, go lose weight. You certainly wouldn't just throw a lot of opioids at the person. You would want to take a holistic approach. And you'd also want to be realistic about how much of the problem would clear up if the person lost weight, right? So high cholesterol, we know that there's a component of that for some people, a very large component that is genetic. And no matter what they eat or no matter what their weight is, they're going to have high cholesterol. So I think if it's germane to the medical issue, it's important to bring it up. It's very important not to go out of your, it is important to go out of your way, not to convey any sense that you think it is, quote, just their weight. And if they would just lose weight, the problem would go away because patients, 
as someone who works with patients with obesity all day, every day, this is one of the hardest experiences and most painful experiences that they have with their physicians is being told this because it feels like their problems not being taken seriously and they are being judged. So not only, oh, just lose weight, but also there's this implied, and this is all your fault anyway, if you could just control yourself then you wouldn't have this problem. Whether the doctor means that or not, I'm assuming that most doctors don't, that's how it feels. And that's a very good way for the patient to A, not listen to you and B, find a different doctor. (laughs) The next question is, okay, if it's important for me to bring it up, but I have to bring it up in a careful way, how do I do that? Would you say that's the next question? That is on the list, definitely the next question. Thank you for asking it. That's an excellent question. (laughs) That that leads us to how do you bring it up in a way that's sensitive? And I think I wouldn't suggest any one specific script because I think that it has to be consistent with your own personal patient interaction style and your vocabulary. But you might try something like, this may be a sensitive topic, but I think that there's a role for talking about your weight here is it all right with you if we discuss that? Okay. So start off asking permission. Right. And also, if you listen to the words that I use saying there's a role for talking about your weight, suggest that it's related, but it's not the whole problem. It's one of the components. And we're going to talk about it within a whole holistic view of what's going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where do we go from there? So now they said, okay, listen, I've spoken to a lot of doctors. They've all told me this. It's not that I wasn't aware of this problem. I've tried. Nothing seems to work. All right, smarty pants, what do you recommend I do? Okay. So here, this sounds like a completely different question, which is what do we advise patients who are open to the suggestion that they lose weight? Well, how often... Do we encounter patients that don't recognize, like this is where we're going to get a little political, but like Bill Maher, it's like doctors never talk to patients about their weight. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, health and wellness is not a part of doctor. This is where like the preventative medicine and functional medicine. And yeah, we talk to our patients about it all the time, but we're not necessarily equipped with useful strategies. Right. And in fact, there's a whole body of research, particularly with primary care physicians as the participants, that's looked at what do you say to patients about weight? What do you recommend? Do you feel you got any training in this? How confident do you feel that anything works? How confident do you feel in your ability to give people useful guidance? And there's a big gap there. Just do keto, bro. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started on those kinds of things because that's especially upsetting. It's so simple. Just do it. I used to have a colleague at work who was vegan and just advised all the patients to be vegan, which, first of all, doesn't necessarily make you lose weight. And in fact, eating vegan and vegetarian can sometimes make you gain weight because of the types of foods that you're having to. Oreos are vegan. Yeah, exactly. But I think one thing that it's helpful to think about is the fact that there is no one weight loss intervention that's going to be acceptable and feasible 
and effective for every single person. And so I think the place to start is, is this something that you're interested in working on or getting help with? And what have you tried before? What worked? What didn't? And just educating people about the range of options that there are out there, of which there are many, but certainly empirically validated behavioral weight loss treatments. There are now some very effective weight loss medications, although those really should be used along with a program of healthy eating and activity. And there's metabolic and bariatric surgery as well. Is that sustainable? Are those medications, right? Because are those medic? I'm not familiar with them, but are they used indefinitely? Because I would guess, and I might be mistaken, that once you stop the medication, you're back to where you started. An excellent point. Yes. In general, medications work as long as you are taking them. The way that they used to discuss this at our orientation gave some patients the mistaken belief that they would be forced to take them for the rest of their lives. And I would always sort of clarify, you don't have to take it for the rest of your life, but once you stop taking it, you likely would regain the weight. So yes, they only work for as long as you're on them, but they're in most cases, some of the older ones are not FDA approved for indefinite use. So using them for longer than a certain amount of time is considered off-label. But the ones that we're finding really effective are the GLP-1 agonists, which are all injectables, which some patients understandably are reluctant to consider. But those are, as far as I know, approved for indefinite use, unless they are not effective. There's dosing rules and prescribing rules for all of these medications that if a patient hasn't lost a certain percentage of their initial weight, by I think 12 weeks in, then that medication is not going to be effective for that person and it is not appropriate to continue on that med. And it might be appropriate to consider a different med or adding another med. There's this community of body acceptance influencers out there who would argue that a doctor should never discuss a patient's weight, right? The argument is working on weight stigma and weight loss at the same time is a contradiction, right? There's this systemic oppression of overweight people. And even this conversation is perpetuating the problem. Like variety is the spice of life. This should be celebrated. It's not a problem to be solved. How do you respond to that? So I think there's a lot of different ways to look at that. Somebody else was just asking me about this the other day. I can't remember in what context, but I don't think anyone should ever be shamed or stigmatized for any reason, much less a medical condition like obesity. And I am not thoroughly familiar with every proponent of the fat acceptance movement, which is, I actually don't like using the word fat, but that's the word that they choose. I can't say, well, they say this and I don't agree with it. I can say that I've heard that argument. I have heard the proposal that having a high weight isn't ever a problem and that people should never be encouraged to change it. I don't agree with that. I think that if it is affecting someone's health or there are plenty of people out there who have high BMIs who have no medical conditions related to weight. There are people who would argue that they will eventually. I don't 
think that's necessarily the case. The thing is, it's a risk factor. Exactly. It's a risk factor. Doesn't mean it will happen. It's just increasing the possibility that something might happen. Right. And I think if we're able to really discuss weight as purely as we can in terms of health consequences, it doesn't have to be stigmatizing. I think it still often feels stigmatizing because people with high weights have been overtly stigmatized about their weight so much in their lives that any mention of it feels stigmatizing. So again, I think it's so sensitive and so important what words we use to discuss it. And I think it's also important to establish a relationship of trust. I mean, would you, within the first 10 minutes of meeting a patient, ask them probing slightly judgmental questions about their sex life or their sexual orientation? Or, you know, you have to have some kind of rapport with the patient and you have to be sensitive. And certainly, I mean, I'm in a different position because if a patient is in my office, they've come to us because they want to lose weight or improve their health. So that's different than most of the people that are listening to you where the patient's not coming to them for weight. I think just like anything else. So for instance, if you have a patient who is single and sexually active, asking them in a sensitive, respectful, health-focused way about the number of partners they have and what kind of protection they use against sexually transmitted infections, that shouldn't be stigmatizing. And again, it's a health risk thing. So asking about it in terms of what's the impact on health, I think is important. I think this is the thing. People in the fat acceptance movement, things that I have read and heard from that movement, as you say, oftentimes they say, don't even bring it up. Don't encourage people to lose weight. Can I give you my thoughts on it? Because I've got a few. Yes. So my thought is that I'm a fan of the fat acceptance movements, right? To use their terminology, not mine. I'm a fan of it because mental health is a huge part of all of this. And so if we can get people to be more accepting of how they are, and then still try to be better versions of themselves, then we'll all be in a better place. Because like you said earlier, we're looking to help patients create better habits, not set expectations of what their weight's going to be or what they're going to look like. We want to all strive to move more and eat better, be accepting of where you are, but always strive to do and be better. So these are not contradictory ideas. Even if their weight doesn't budge, I think that's the thing. I feel very strongly that nobody should be stigmatized about their weight and that conversations about weight need to revolve around health and sort of how is it affecting you? And if a patient is sort of objectively healthy by all of our kind of parameters and they're eating a fairly healthy diet, not a perfect one, but fairly healthy one, and they're being active on a regular basis, don't bug them. Or if that's not the case, certainly shaming people is not the way to go. There's research showing that experienced weight stigma and internalized weight bias both lead to pathological eating behaviors. So there's sometimes this argument that's put forward, and I think Bill Maher got into trouble over this. He put forward this argument that- Guy's a villain. 
we should be stigmatizing people so that they're motivated to change. And it's like, you don't think people are motivated to change? Do you think that all the people that have a high weight are delighted to have a high weight? And making them feel awful about it is really going to work. Exactly. It doesn't work. We know this. And there's lots of research to show that it does not work. And there's this idea that keeps popping into my head about the fat acceptance movement. There's a movement that is adjacent to the fat acceptance movement called the health at every size movement, where the idea is that let's just take weight off the table and let's just focus on your health. So let's say your BMI is high and you're genetically predisposed to have a high BMI. Let's just have you be as healthy as you can at that BMI. Let's make sure you're eating healthfully. Let's make sure that you're moving. And if the scale doesn't budge, we're not going to freak out about it. We're going to make you as healthy as you can be. I think that there's, and this may be sort of an extreme faction of the fat acceptance movement that sort of argues that it is inaccurate to say that excess adiposity is unhealthy and correlated with weight. And I've heard people make arguments that there's not good evidence that having a high weight puts you at risk for more health problems. That's extreme. I don't think that's correct. I also don't think it's at all correct to assume that anyone who has a high weight is unhealthy or is going to be unhealthy and that we need to save them despite themselves. Well, even the term unhealthy, I would put that with the good, bad food terms that we talked about in the last episode. Yeah. That's a really nebulous term. It's a moving target. And I might have a bunch of unhealthy habits one month and have healthy habits the next month. So am I healthy or unhealthy? I'm talking about the state of their health, not whether their behaviors are healthy or unhealthy. Okay. But you're also right about that. I agree with a lot of the things in the fat acceptance movement, except when it gets extreme and says you shouldn't ever encourage people or help people to lose weight and that you shouldn't tie weight in with health. I think health is the main reason. When someone wants to lose weight because they feel terrible about themselves because of how they look... To me, the problem is how they are assessing their own self-worth. And the answer to that isn't that they need to lose weight. It may be helpful for them to lose weight for their health, and they may feel better about themselves as well, but it's really important to feel good about yourself, whatever you look like. The first question that I ask all of my patients is, How is your weight affecting your life right now? And if they don't mention anything about their self-image, I will ask about that and say, is your weight affecting your self-image? And whenever I get someone who says, no, I think I'm awesome. I say, excellent. You're already a step ahead of the game because it does not help you to feel crappy about yourself. Again, we get into that situation where if their mental health is tied in like that, and they're not in a great place, it's going to be much harder for them to develop those and keep those healthy habits. Whereas if they're accepting of where they are, I'm great, then they're in a better space to start or continue those healthy habits. Absolutely. I talk to patients a lot about how they're thinking about their eating and the tendency to that many of my patients have, well, not all of them, to be extremely self-punitive in their cognitions 
about their eating and I'll say, okay, well, I think, you know, a lot of times, especially I'm in New England, we've got that Puritan sensibility. There's this idea that if I'm really hard on myself, then I'm going to do better. I'm going to straighten up and fly right. Right. That's shame. Right. And I say, is that what happens? And they will say, no, actually, I feel worse and I end up eating more. I end up in the coat closet with a box of Oreos. Yeah, exactly. So instead of going, all right, that was what I ate for dinner tonight and going back to, you know, healthier habits. If you're beating yourself up about it, you may it may take longer to get back into healthier habits. So it doesn't help you do better. It can actually make things worse. And at best, you feel like crap. So it is completely not useful. And let's just try to take it off the table. So I have a proposal here. When we do want to bring it up with patients, when we do want to discuss their weight, how would you feel about us saying, well, before we even get to your weight, so your weight is, let's talk about your back pain, right? You're carrying some extra weight. It would certainly help, although it may not relieve the problem altogether if you address this. But before we even get to that, let's talk about your sleep and let's talk about your mental health. Let's tackle those two things first, because it's going to be really hard to tackle the weight if your mental health and your sleep are not in order. So let's get those things squared away. Then we'll get to this other issue. I understand why you're proposing that. I think you might not need to go quite that far in showing that you're not overly focusing on the weight. Okay. As a psychologist, I will also say there's a ton of stigma about mental health stuff, especially, I mean, not in my circles that I run in and in the culture where I was brought up in, but there's a lot of stigma about mental health or therapy or what have you. So when you say mental health, what some patients will hear is, you think I'm crazy. So instead of mental health, I'm not sure how you would put it. That's actually an episode unto itself, how to even bring up the issue of mental health. Because, you know, I see a lot of patients with tinnitus. Ringing the ears is... Makes people insane. I wouldn't use that word. Author of bad words, the article. I use it in the late sense of the word. But they're inextricably tied together. So whenever I talk to people about tinnitus, I also talk about anxiety, depression, about mood disorders, mental health. But I don't know a great way to bring it up, just like prior to this episode didn't have a great lead into how to talk about weight. So that would be a great episode in and of itself. How do we bring up mental health? What if you said emotional well-being? Okay, I'll take it. Instead of mental health. All right, I don't need that episode anymore. I'll just say emotional well-being. Yeah, we fixed it. You're a psychologist. This is what you do. You know this stuff. Right, because if you say before we even bring weight into it, you're already planting the seed that weight's going to come into it. Yeah. So depending on what the thing is, like if it's pain or if it's sleep apnea or whatever, you might say there's different components of this and maybe even draw a pie chart. I'm just laughing to myself because we're talking about pie and we're talking about (laughs) weight, but a Venn diagram, a Venn diagram. And here's the different potential components to this problem. And with sleep, there's the biological with sleep apnea. There's behavioral sleep habits. There's anxiety and depression that can affect sleep. There's, there's different medications that can affect sleep and weight can affect sleep. So you can say, here's the array of different things we can look at. And then weight is just one of those things. And maybe start with one of the other things and then 
include weight, but still asking, this can be a tough topic for some people. Are you comfortable talking about this? Permission, just like we did with the weight, ask permission. Yeah. But I'm saying with the weight when you're talking about, so if you're dealing with pain, same thing. Well, there's all kinds of things that can affect pain and that pain can affect synergistically. And so saying, okay, well, here's all the different components that can affect and be affected by pain. And let's take a look at each of them so that you're not singling out the weight. Part of the Venn diagram. Yes. Part of the pie. Yes. Or the Oreo. I love it. I always learn so much whenever we talk and feel like I come away being a better physician for it. Well, I'm very, very glad that you feel that way. I think the next episode is going to need to be, all right, now we've opened the door. We now had a good start to the conversation. We're not alienating the patient. We're making the relationship stronger. What works? That's going to be the next episode. What works? That'll be an episode unto itself. If I'm the guest for that, I'm going to be frustrating because again, and I touched on this a little bit and I feel bad because I don't really feel like I answered your question when you said, what do we tell them to do about it? And again, it has to be personalized and certain options won't be acceptable to some patients. Certain options won't be feasible for some of them or won't work for some of them for just biological reasons. So figuring out what the right approach is, is really difficult, but I think you can't go wrong with paleo. (laughs) You can go very wrong with paleo. You can't go wrong with saying diets are temporary. Diets don't work. We want to look at, are there aspects of your behavioral habits that could be improved in a way that doesn't feel too painful to do forever? Can you go from four sodas a day to one per day? Even if it has to be gradual, can you go from not doing any physical activity to taking a 10 minute walk every day and seeing if you can work your way up from there? But this is the other thing that's really frustrating for everyone, including professionals in the obesity medicine world is there is no magic solution. And even our best treatment, which is metabolic and bariatric surgery, isn't a magic solution and still requires hard work and still results may vary as they say on TV. So trying to keep people away, like certainly not saying, well, just do keto or just do intermittent fasting, which is such a big buzzword these days. But look, there's unfortunately, there is no way in the world to get around the need to be maintaining a fairly healthy eating routine, both in the choices, the timing, and the amounts in which you're eating and being active on a regular basis. You're probably too young to remember these sort of old-fashioned ads for these belts that would vibrate and people would stand in the belt. I know that from Betty Boop cartoons. It was purported to exercise (laughs) that you didn't have to exercise yourself. Yeah, there's no magic bullet. No, there's no way around maintaining fairly healthy habits. There just isn't. This will be my last question. You know, I brought up BJ Fogg a couple of times, but is there anything in the habit development literature, any resource that you tend to turn to, to help them develop the habits that they want to develop? I do rely a lot on when you say the literature, I mean, going back to the OGs of BF Skinner and Ivan Pavlov and just talking about. Do you ring in bells? 
classical conditioning and so stimulus control, which I'm happy to explain if you want me to explain, but sort of like using learning principles, which are about habits are learned. So using behavioral principles, operant and classical conditioning. I am one of these people that thinks that planning and having a routine will solve most problems. So really doing some advanced planning and really getting into a routine so that your healthier habits are automatized because anytime you leave it up to choice, then there's a chance you're going to choose the thing that's less healthy. So if it's thing you just do automatically, it feels much less effortful and it's much more likely to happen. So using different kinds of behavioral principles to automatize behaviors and get people into a routine. Excellent. Planning. I love it. And also operant conditioning, positive reinforcement works, negative reinforcement doesn't, which is why shame doesn't work. Well, negative reinforcement does work. But it extinguishes quickly. No. Right? Isn't that what it was? I'm not remembering my psychology. You're not. I actually read an article, an original article by Albert Bandura, who's one of the pioneers of behavior theory, cognitive behavioral theory, who used the word negative reinforcement incorrectly. Anything that has the word reinforcement means it's rewarding. So what negative reinforcement is that you're rewarding a behavior by removing an unpleasant stimulus. So negative reinforcement, somebody feels really stressed out they grab some potato chips and for half an hour, they feel calmer. That's negatively reinforcing. It's taking away the stress. Okay. But you know what I was getting at? Punishment. That's punishment, a negative stimulus. Exactly. So positive reinforcement, any kind of reinforcement works way better than punishment. And harnessing classical conditioning is also really important. One of the behaviors I work on the most by far is getting out of the habit of eating in front of the TV at night because it's a self-perpetuating behavior because of classical conditioning. And we can use classical conditioning principles to extinguish that. Well, all great stuff to think about, all great stuff for us to include in our practices. So I really appreciate you taking this time again to speak to me again. I am sure this is going to be as popular, not more so than the last episode. And I would definitely love to have you back again. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm flattered to have been asked back a second time and would be happy to come back as many more times as I can be useful. All right, Dr. Stephanie Sog, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Lastly, we have a slightly different flavor for today's throwback, an episode that merges the worlds of comedy and medicine. In our conversation with Scott Dickers, a founder of The Onion, we explored the power of humor in the patient-physician relationships. His insights into comedy writing and its application in even the most challenging situations, like the ones we see in healthcare, can both give us and our patients a more interesting and enjoyable interaction. He has a method for thinking about humor and gives us some guidelines for using it in the exam room. Scott Dickers founded the world's first humor website, TheOnion.com, in 1996, and a few years prior to that had helped found the original Onion newspaper. He served at The Onion's as The Onion's owner and editor-in-chief on and off for much of the last quarter century. He led The Onion's rise from small, unknown college humor publication to internationally respected comedy brand. He's also a New York Times bestseller and Peabody Award winner. He documented his process for creating humor in his book, How to Write Funny, 
the follow-up in the series, How to Write Funnier, and yes, shockingly, the final in the trilogy, How to Write Funniest, which are the basis for writing with the Onion program that he created and teaches at the Second City Training Center in Chicago. Mr. Dickers offers other courses and free resources for comedy writers on the How to Write Funny website. Scott Dickers, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It is my pleasure. Thanks, Bradley. So can you teach someone to be funny? For some of us physicians, we're really starting with very little experience in that area. So is it really possible to get from zero to, I don't know, 20 miles per hour in terms of funny? Yeah, it totally is. And it's so funny to me that myth that comedy is unteachable persists because the evidence is so overwhelming. They have uh, comedy training centers like the Second City and the Upright Citizens Brigade. And people go in there with nothing. They go in there like shy accountants who never thought they were funny. And they come out the other end getting jobs on Saturday Night Live. So it's, and I'm one of those people too. Like I grew up a totally unfunny person, a shy kid who was just really socially awkward. And when I tried to be funny, because I discovered Mad Magazine and wanted to be funny, it was painfully terrible. Like I just was awful, but I loved doing it. I kept doing it. I practiced like with anything. Practice, you get better. And pretty soon I'm a celebrated humor, whatever I am. So, okay. So now we're, for, for the doctors listening, they now know even if they're not funny, they can learn to be, it just takes practice. I think there's, a, there's this author that, I, or actually she's a researcher that I often um, refer to on the show, Carol Dweck, and she wrote this book called Mindset, that if you have a growth mindset, you can actually improve in, in aspects that people think of as like being fixed in your personality. And I think funny is one of those things, right? Like you start off at three years old, you make some people laugh, you realize, hey, I can get a rise out of people. And then you kind of, as you're four, five, six, you kind of can figure out what makes people laugh and then what doesn't. So by the time you're 12 and in middle school, you're the funny one. And it seems like you were just always that way. Meanwhile, the rest of us probably started when we were a bit older and it, we're more apprehensive about taking those risks to figure out what's funny and what isn't. Yeah, you've got it exactly. It's You're putting in your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours, oftentimes in childhood, because people tend to become funny as a response to whatever family dynamic they grow up in. Maybe they're the peacemaker in the family. Maybe they've learned that they get love if they're funny. And so they're practicing and they're doing it all the time. And then they do it at school. So by the time they're 15, 20, they're masters of humor. But not everybody does that. Some people, like I said, they're accountants and they never were funny. If they want to start putting in their 10,000 hours at age 40, why not? It doesn't make any difference. But yeah, I agree. It's, it is typically a young person's game, comedy, because people are more uninhibited when they're young and they'll say anything and they'll try anything and they don't care if it flops. And so we obviously grow up, we have that fear of not being accepted or being inappropriate or being dumb or goofy or childish or whatever. When you're a child, obviously you don't care. So when you go to a place like the Second City Training Center in Chicago, where I have the pleasure of teaching, they that's the first thing they do is they break down your inhibitions. So you start to act dumb and act goofy and act silly and you just loosen up and you just start acting like a, a three-year-old again. And it's very liberating because we still have those 
desires to be goofy and silly and say whatever we want, but we've just learned to suppress them. Doctors especially, they're very suppressed because they have to be so appropriate all the time. Right. So I don't know if we can really go back to being uninhibited when we're in the office with our patients because we're going to burn a lot of bridges and lose a lot of trust that way. So I think maybe we're going to have to keep that in mind in terms of, right, in terms of our, our recommendations. Yeah, you do that in a comedy class. You go overboard in a comedy class and you do wild gestures and you act like a goof. But what that does is it just like lets the steam out a little bit so that in your regular life, you can be like 2% more uninhibited in mixed company. Yeah. And actually on your podcast, I was listening to the episode with Chris Titus and he mentioned that he was in, I think it was an improv class or a stand-up class with someone or no, it was someone that was opening up for the comics and it was a physician and the physician was just trying to improve his chops for his profession. Absolutely. I mentor people on occasion and right now I'm mentoring, it just so happens, a doctor who wants to learn how to write comedy and he's learning really fast. He's going uh, gangbusters. He came at it with really uh, no background in comedy. Which is, I think, for the listeners out there and from hearing my previous episodes, they know that's where most of us are starting from. So how do we even know if we're funny? Because I know plenty of us think that all of our patients love us. And then you go on Yelp and find out that's not the case. So I'm sure a lot of us think we're also funny. How do we know if we're funny? And then in the act, how do we know if we're being funny versus getting maybe some pity laps and smiles from our patients? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's like anything. If you call yourself funny, if you're labeling and branding yourself as funny, you're going to have this expectation that everything you say and do is going to be hilarious. But if you allow yourself to praise effort and say, oh, that was a funny thing I said that one time, I have some promise, maybe I should work on that. That's a much healthier way to, to begin. If you're going to brand yourself as unfunny, that's just as harmful because then you're not going to think anything you ever say is funny. Any, everybody's on the spectrum. Sometimes we're going to say stuff that's funny. Sometimes we're going to say stuff that's not funny. Being able to recognize it is pretty simple. It's just, do people laugh? Does it put people at ease? Does it make them like you? Great. If it doesn't, if it makes them feel awkward, if they squirm in their seat and get embarrassed, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know. So that's the main thing I would say is like, I wouldn't think of it in terms of, am I funny or am I not funny? I would think of it in terms of, have I done something funny? If so, maybe look at that. What did I do? Or did I do something that really wasn't funny? Look at that too. Okay, how would I do that differently? You know. So don't pigeonhole yourself. Recognize that it's something that you need to work on. Even if you are funny, you can always get funnier. But you're saying it's not hard to tell from the audience whether those are, are genuine, genuine laughs or not. It's a great, the best thing about comedy is that it's so clear when it's working because people are laughing. Yeah. So do you have any big pieces of advice? And I think we're going to focus most of this on the doctor-patient interaction, right? In the exam room. Although it would certainly be nice to get some pointers as well for if we're giving a lecture. But let's start with just the doctor-patient relationship. Any big pieces of advice, big picture, big rules? I've heard you talk on your show about not using cliches. I was thinking that actually might be a better idea for doctors to use if they're just kind of trying to dip their toes in the water of being funny and, and want to stay safe. Yeah, cliches are incredibly safe. And I don't like to use them in professional work, but I love to use them in 
interpersonal, you know, conversation and stuff like that, because they're great. Like I still call the internet, the interwebs in personal, in interpersonal conversations, because I still think it's funny, even though it's a cliche that dates back almost 20 years at this point, 15, 20. And so, yeah, cliches are great. There are so many little phrases jokes that people have already told. I actually have a list. <laughs> I should I should plug this. If you go to howtowritefunny.com, there's a... What is the link? I'm going to look that up. We'll include that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay, great. I, I won't look it up. But if you go to howtowritefunny.com slash list, I think it is, you get this list of cliches and there's literally like 150, 200 of them of just these little phrases, little jokes that are kind of guaranteed laugh getters. The reason I made the list was for professional comedians to not use them. Because if a professional uses them, it's kind of like cheating. But a doctor in an office, absolutely. Like go nuts with that list. Any other general rules that you think might help guide us and push us in the right direction? Yeah. So I don't want to get too far in the weeds here. But so when I break down the craft of comedy and teach it to people, I tell them the first thing you have to have is subtext, which means you have to have something to say. You have to have something you're communicating. And then to make it funny, you just have to filter it through one of 11 different funny filters. And these are the only 11 things that are funny. One of them is irony. One of them is hyperbole. One of them is analogy. One of them is misplaced focus, character, parody. So they're all like literary devices. And there are a handful, like two or three of them that are really safe and that you can use in a doctor-patient relationship where you're not going to offend anybody. One of them is shock, which I wouldn't use, like shock humor, anything having to do with sex or violence or drugs or death or whatever. That's going to be inappropriate in the wrong context. But there's another funny filter uh, reference, which is a really powerful form of humor where you simply find a reference that you share with the person that you're talking to. Jerry Seinfeld was a master of this. He would always point out these little things in the world that he's noticed that you never thought about, but as soon as he mentions it, you've, you're like, oh, I've noticed that, and you laugh. It's just this moment of recognition. Like, did you ever wonder how the, you always lose a sock in the washing machine? And just little things like that that he can spin into a bit. And if you're in a doctor-patient relationship, you have a lot of shared references and you can just, by bringing up those little things that you share, it lightens the moment, it bonds. Humor is very bonding. So I would say use reference humor. It's like observational humor. And then another one is character. So character humor is when you typically use a comedic character or an archetype that the audience kind of immediately understands because it's like a two-dimensional character. And characters recur constantly in comedy. There are characters like the bumbling authority, the man-child. Over and over, we see these characters. They come in slightly different shapes and sizes, so they always feel new. But usually when you say someone's funny, they have, they're like a character. So they have character traits. And a lot of funny authority figures like doctors or school principals usually assay certain character traits or they exaggerate certain character traits about themselves. And that can really work. And a really good trait to, to exaggerate in yourself is any, anything that's like ineffectual bumbling, like not like literally bumbling, but like, for example, being clumsy or being not, not knowing the, the right way to say something, 
uh, to someone making fun of that and being self-depreciating. Like people always appreciate that. It's very disarming. That's just a, a handful of like little like tips or, or techniques that I think you, you can't go wrong, at least experimenting with. I think for physicians, it would probably be a better idea if you're like fumbling with the computer. You don't want to, so I'm going to be operating on you in a half an hour. And if you, you know, try to be uh, self-deprecating about your inability to have hand-eye coordination or something like that, probably not a good idea, but, you know, poking fun at the fact that we have spent so much time behind a screen instead of making eye contact with the patient, which is something we all complain about and, and things like that, rather than something specific to the practice of medicine. Absolutely. It has to be about something ineffectual so that there's no, no real danger that you're going to be incompetent. But if you can show incompetence in some inoffensive or ineffectual way, that's really funny. Poking fun at your inability to run on time or doctor. Yeah, your inability to take your own advice and lose weight, your inability to uh, keep your hair, just anything. I use that one already. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Unfortunately. So are there any other, so you said shock was one to stay away from. Any others that, any other of the 11 funny filters that you think it wouldn't be a great idea for doctors to use? Their- Anti-humor is not one I would use. That's under the category of meta-humor. Meta-humor is wonderful. Like that's, if you like tell a bad joke and then you're able to laugh at the fact that you told a bad joke, that's really good. That's a great self-depreciating thing to do. But it's getting close to anti-humor, which can be a little esoteric and... I wouldn't necessarily go there. And I think irony is wonderful as long as you don't, as long as your subtext is harmless. Like I wouldn't do, I wouldn't use irony if your subtext is something serious. And with a doctor, I think you obviously intuited this, like anytime you're making jokes, you want to do it in the small talk portion of the meeting and for any harmless or ineffectual part of the meeting. But then once you're talking medical stuff, it's like you're down to business. and the the humor is just like the parsley on the dish that that kind of makes it pretty and makes everybody a little more comfortable, you know. So it's a way to to help build rapport at the beginning of the visit, not at the end of the visit when you are. Or I guess you could also splash it in a little bit at at the end of the visit. Uh, yeah, bookend it. And, time for uh, reference. Uh, yeah, and yeah, the, the time um, when you have to wait a long time for me. It was great. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Like a stand-up comedian will almost always end their set with a callback joke, which is a form of reference because they told the joke once before in their uh, bit or in their their set, and then they do it again at the very end, and the audience recognizes it, remembers it, and it's like a shared reference. Everybody loves it. So a doctor being able to like make a joke about being late at the beginning of the meeting and then calling back that joke at the end of the meeting is... Like, if you can pull that off, like, you seem like a competent, funny person. And one thing we should also talk about is the importance of confidence. Like, confidence is everything in humor. If you're not confident, you're not going to be funny. Like, even if you've got jokes that you've crafted, they're just not going to work. The same jokes crafted, like the same jokes told by someone with confidence, however, are going to work great. So... By the same token, if you've got bad jokes, those aren't going to work if, if you don't have confidence, but they actually will work if you're really confident. Like it, the quality of the humor is actually less important than how confident the performer is. The delivery. So you mentioned before using meta humor to recover from a bomb. And I think 
if we're confident in our ability to recover from a bad joke, it's going to help us just be more confident presenting with humor throughout the entire visit. So absolutely. How so if we do tell a joke and it's met with crickets or maybe even disdain, how do we recover from that? How do we salvage that potentially damaged relationship? With confidence and with meta humor. So um, making a joke about how good thing I'm a doctor and not a comedian type of a line it immediately puts everyone at ease and you can recover from just about any joke with that type of attitude. And again, if you're scared that you made a mistake and you're nervous, that's going to come off as very low confidence and it's not going to work. You're not really going to be able to recover. But if you can recover like Steve Martin, he does meta humor all the time. He's just like made of pure confidence and it always works. He can go up on stage and just tell a really bad joke and pretend to be laughing at it himself, even though he knows it's terrible. <laughs> and the audience is loving it because he's enjoying himself so much. You know, It's infectious. Right. To use another doctor reference. I, that wasn't yes. even intentional. It's just pouring <laughs> out of me. Good. Uh, so do you think you can use the same thing if you cross the line? Like, let's say you, you made a joke and it turns out not only didn't they think it was funny, they thought it was a bit inappropriate. Like, sometimes I'll use profanity if my patient's like in their early 20s, right? And I can feel out the patient, at least I think I can, and figure out, especially if they're dropping F-bombs with me during the visit, I don't know why they get the impression that's okay, but they do. And then I run with it. So, but let's say I, I have that, but with like an octogenarian and it slips out and I've crossed the line, totally inappropriate. Do I just do the same thing? Or do you think there's something else that I need to do in order to be able to move on? Or same idea, just make a joke about the joke, keep going, push through, be confident. I think in general, the latter. I think you make a good point, like with the, the audience, because obviously you need to know your audience and you need to know what they would accept. And so if you've got like a, a conservative church going octogenarian and you're dropping the C word and F-bombs in your appointment with that person, it's going to be really hard to recover from that. <laughs> uh, so just don't do it. Just don't do that. But, and swearing is just not the most shocking thing you can do. You can make jokes that really offend people or make them feel like they've been attacked. And it is really hard to recover from that. So for swearing, absolutely. I would make a joke about, um, oh, I, I thought I was going to get bleeped. Or if you sense that somebody isn't ready for swear words, there are jokes to be made. And I think in this day and age, swearing has become more acceptable because like all the presidential candidates are swearing now on TV. I don't know if you've noticed that. This is very new and it's just a thing. And also because we have the internet instead of TV and for everybody except the octogenarian, it's not as offensive. But let's say you told a joke that really crossed a line and was offensive. I think the best thing to do is prevention in that case, to use another medical analogy. I want to explain like what jokes do cross the line and just don't do those jokes. So the central mission of good humor should be to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So if you're punching down and you're making fun of someone with uh, a terminal illness or you're making fun of an oppressed group, that's going to be perceived by most people as crossing a line and inappropriate and offensive, especially if they're in that group or affected by whatever you're minimizing. By the same token, if you punch up and you afflict the comfortable, 
almost everybody appreciates that's everybody loves to see authorities brought down to size institutions that are establishment institutions being mocked is always fun and so if as long as you're doing that and not punching down you could even suck up a little bit especially to the octogenarian like being pro establishment's not going to hurt you but don't ever punch down like no even if somebody who let's say they're a racist and they are just a cruel person. That's the only type of person you can get away with that, but that's a small minority of people. Most people, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, don't enjoy humor that kicks people while they're down. And as long as you can avoid that, I think you're not really gonna do anything too offensive. The sort of superficially offensive stuff swearing, sexual references, drug references, stuff like that. I think those can be easily recovered from with uh, a little bit of self-depreciating meta-humor. So that gets us to a, a little bit of a different question. It might actually very similar. I crowdsourced some questions from the Twitter. And, and one of the questions that came up was very well phrased. How do we respect all without dampening joy, right? We want to set the tone in the workplace. A lot of times, the physician is the the leader and like if I'm in the operating room, right, it's myself and the anesthesiologist and then everyone else is helping us get the operation done. So we set the tone. So how do we set the tone in the workplace where there's varying degrees of what's funny and what's appropriate without disrespecting people, but still allowing them to enjoy it, especially since medical humor, there's a lot of gallows humor, so it can get pretty dark and pretty offensive. And you're talking about humor amongst the medical staff, not between staff and patients, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that really, I think it was from an attending who, say, was, would be going on rounds. So that's the attending, a couple of residents, a couple of medical students, and hopefully the nurses. And so this is frequently done in front of the patients. So still, you may, not, you may or may not be speaking directly to the patient. You may be speaking to the staff or to the other more junior doctors? Yeah, I think in a situation like that, like if there's if it's mixed company and you don't know everybody and it's maybe mixed audiences, mixed demographics, again, you can't go wrong with like reference humor because so many shared human experiences can be mentioned that uh, everybody can relate to. And if you say them confidently and with a smile, like if somebody's hurting and you can relate to that pain or you can associate it with another pain that we've all experienced, like that's, that can be a light moment. If it's like gallows humor, I think everybody appreciates a little gallows humor as long as it's harmless, as long as it's sort of Adam's family caliber and not like Alfred Hitchcock caliber, you know what I mean? At least when I trained, which at this point was like, I mean, I finished my training eight years ago, but I started 15, 20 years ago, close to that. The landscape has changed a bit. So there was, at least then, a lot of pretty offensive stuff being, but I think nowadays we're getting better about that. What's appropriate and what's what's inappropriate. So it was definitely Alfred Hitchcock. And I'm sure a lot of that is still happening. And some of that's coping, right? You experience some pretty dark stuff in some of our specialties. So just helping push through it, that, that ends up happening. But you're right. You have to be cognizant to your company. Yeah, and there, there's obviously varying degrees. Like one of the funny filters is hyperbole. And so a, a good doctor joke, just kind of a really generic joke, 
if a kid comes in and they hurt themselves, saying, pretending that they're, they're going to die because of like a stubbed toe or whatever, like that's a little hyperbole. Everybody's going to laugh at that because we all know that they're not going to die. They're just hurting, but it lightens the, the mood a little bit. Maybe can get them laughing through the pain a little bit. Um, and again, if it has to be told with confidence or it's not going to work, but yeah, the, I think the gallows humor is something you have to assess your audience with. I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and I do a lot of outpatient visits most of my time. I spend some time in the operating room, but I spend a lot of time in the office. And we tend to see the same things over and over. And so I try to kind of have a shtick, right? Oh, sure. Because I think that's I just, I, How many times can I remove earwax? And I tend to say the same things over and over. So I try to make it entertaining for the patient, which makes it more entertaining for me and more engaging. How do I, do you have any recommendations for? kind of honing that shtick? Like, how do I improve upon it? I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin. This, the things just kind of, some things end up being said organically. I find sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Do you have any recommendations for that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So you're basically a stand-up comic and you're testing material at open mic nights but instead of having an audience in a comedy club, you have a patient that you're taking earwax out of. And yes, you're that's trying, exactly it. <laughs> you're, you're trying material. You have what's called your type five, like your routine that you know works, but you want to experiment, you want to expand it, you want to improve it. So what you do is you drop in something new, like in the middle, like use your safe material that works, but drop something new in the middle and just make a mental note. Did it work? Was it funny? And if it was, like, comedy is just a process of evolution. Like, you try something, and if the audience laughs with it, you keep it, and you then you riff on that, and you go more in that direction because they're laughing at that. And after a few performances, you've got a, a much improved set or whatever. So one other thing that comedians do, and I don't know how far you want to go with this, but I, I would do this. Before the patient comes in, just run the recorder on your phone so you can listen to yourself later to remember any jokes that you improvised during the, your little shtick that you want to make sure you remember. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that, I, I think that gets into some murky legal territory oh, yeah, in terms of recurring the uh, Patient Privacy Act. Didn't even think that. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know that stuff. Yeah. No, but that's just in general. I think that's a good idea for doctors to do is to record their visits from time to time and even videotape them and, and look at them and see what you look like when you're interacting with your patient, not just for humor's sake, but just to recognize some of the potential flaws in your interaction. It's something that I keep meaning to do, but keep not actually wanting to do because I'm afraid of what I'm going to find. <laughs> yeah. It, it is scary to record. You learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I've yet to have the chutzpah to pull the trigger on that. So, how do you deal with taboo subjects? So we got a little bit with reading your audience and, and what's safe and what isn't. But sometimes in medicine, there are some taboo subjects that we deal with. And like when you were at The Onion, right, you guys put out a 9-11 edition two weeks after it happened, which I think, speaking of chutzpah, and I mean, looking at it now, it's, I think it, it's fantastic. But how did you know when it was okay? And by extension, then, how do we know when it's okay? 
Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, so there's a formula for edgy humor. And in my opinion, no subject is taboo because as long as you're comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable, you can tell any joke about any subject at any time. And one thing you have to remember is that comedy is uh, a coping mechanism in times of tragedy. And sometimes in a tragedy, we sort of revert to our reptilian brain or survival brain. And we're not in our higher brain function. We're not in the higher reasoning or that's where humor is. We're just not there. And so once we can laugh again, like it, it returns our humanity in a way. So it's a very cathartic and powerful sort of healing mechanism, humor. And it's really important to remember that when dealing with taboo subjects. So, yeah, my first response there is I don't believe there are any taboo subjects uh, as long as you're using the formula. So here's the formula for doing edgy humor. So if you can get perilously close to the wrong target, meaning perilously close to afflicting the afflicted or comforting the comfortable, uh, but not actually doing it, just like getting perilously close, and there's a, there's a fine art to that. But if you can do that a little bit, your humor is going to be perceived as edgy. Number two, there's a formula that all comedians know. Comedy equals tragedy plus time. And one way to make your humor a little edgier is to reduce or eliminate entirely the time part of that equation. So experiment with how soon you can do something. And there's a great cliche that you can always use, the whole too soon. People are going to laugh at that. It's a cliche that a professional wouldn't use at this point, but you know, a lay person could totally use that to do some self-depreciating meta-humor after a joke bombs. And then the third way to make something edgy is to just insert a little bit of shock, throw in a little swear or make a reference to something shocking like sex or drugs or violence or something like that. Do any combination of those three things and your humor is going to be edgy. So you don't have to use a taboo subject to do edgy humor. You can do that humor about the most mundane thing in the world. You may come up with a joke about tacos and just run it through those three things and you might have yourself a really edgy joke. A taboo subject, as long as your heart is in the right place with your subtext, as long as you're saying the right thing, uh, nobody's going to find that offensive. Well, somebody might, but they'd be in the wrong <laughs> and I wouldn't worry about them. Because here's the other thing about humor is if someone somewhere is not offended, you're probably not doing it right. Because somewhere there's always somebody who has no sense of humor. And at some point, them being offended becomes more their fault than yours. A couple of years ago, I had a string of Yelp reviews that were five-star Yelp reviews where they mentioned my humor, followed by a one-star Yelp review where they mentioned my humor. So, of course. Yeah, uh, perfect. <laughs> so you're saying that meant I was doing it right, not that I messed up with that one person. That person was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. But I, I think that's an incredible rule, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's That rule, whenever you're joking around with your patients, as long as you're following that, it's really hard to go wrong. It really is. Yeah. You can say just about anything. So I'm giving a talk in a month and a half on 
surgical options for sleep apnea. It's hilarious. A barn burner. Right. So what what happens when we've got a really bland topic and we want to inject some humor, right? Like we just foresee everyone nodding off as we're just as we're get, droning on and on about a pretty mundane topic. How do we inject humor into there? But it doesn't necessarily need to be edgy, just something. Some to light it up. I totally understand. I am on the lecture circuit as well. I give talks. My whole talk is funny, so I don't have to worry about injecting humor in my talks. But I, yeah, I can imagine a talk on that subject could really use a little um, humor injection. So there's a few things that I would do. First of all, count your blessings. Because when your subject is really dry, the hard work is already done for you. Because all comedy needs a straight man. And you've got the straight man. All comedy comes from contrast between the straight, the serious, and the boring, contrasted with the wacky, the silly, and the inappropriate. If you just have the wacky, silly, and inappropriate, that comes off as really kind of clownish and childish. And if you just have the, the boring and the straight, like obviously that just comes off as boring. So being able to play off of the two a little bit is really delightful to an audience. So with when you're doing a humor lecture like I do, like that's really hard. You're expected to go up there and just be funny or stand-up comedy. Everybody knows how hard stand-up comedy is. It's like one of the hardest things in the world to do because – there's no straight man. Like you're just expected to go up there and be funny immediately. So count your blessings. Uh, a boring lecture about sleep apnea is the greatest gift that a comedy writer could possibly have. Cause you can make jokes about snoring and about sleeping through your talk or the audience sleeping through your talk. Like there are so many jokes that you can use to play off of that straight subject. I'm envious of you. So Really? Uh, number, yes. <laughs> Num number two, so I wrote this book called How to Write Funny. So it's a long process that comedians and comedy writers learn to craft jokes, and it's too much to get into just in this interview, but broken down very simply, you have your subtext, which is the, the thing that you're trying to communicate, and then you filter that through one of these 11 funny filters, and it comes out the other end as a joke. And so... You can just use, and there's methods in the book for how to craft individual jokes. And you can go through that and like brainstorm some jokes and try them out on some people in the office before you give your talk to see if, if they're going to be good icebreakers. And that would be a really good, fun experience, I would think, for somebody who's trying to get better at, at writing humor or get better at being failing that. So that's the do-it-yourself method. There are tons of people, tons of comedians who are at your service for writing a few jokes, like just Google comedy writer, and you'll find a thousand people with websites who write comedy articles and write freelance jokes for various publications or TV shows who would be more than happy at, uh, to write some ice-breaking jokes for your speech. In fact, there's uh, an outfit that I, I was associated during its founding called Comedy Wire, where there's a whole team of comedians and you basically pay them, you give them a prompt and they come up with like dozens of jokes to suit your needs and you pick the best one. So there's a service for that. I don't know if that's what, what you were implying or what you wanted to get into, but it's, it's a thing that you can do. 
That is, I didn't realize that there was Task Rabbit for jokes that would Absolutely. have been useful for like a best man speech. I'm, I'm sure there, there are a lot of people out there yeah. that would reach out to something like that. Mm-hmm. That's a great service. So, is there any message that you'd want to give to your doctor about maybe <laughs> how he or she? Let's say they that individual happens to be listening and you wanted to give that person a pointer about how they could lighten up the visit a little bit and maybe joke around with you a little more, maybe before or after the prostate exam. That's always an easy yeah. one for humor. What what no, message would you have? That's a good question. I want my doctor to laugh at my jokes. <laughs> that's what I, like, I don't want my doctor to be funny. I didn't go there for entertainment. I went there for medicine. So if I'm like trying to make light of something or getting embarrassed talking about like bodily functions or whatever, I want them to laugh along with me to, because that puts me at ease. If they're all totally serious and like giving me the stern look and nod while I'm trying to explain something in a humorous way, that makes me a little nervous, you know? It also tells you that they're listening, right? If they're laughing at your jokes, then clearly they're listening. And they might not be listening. They might not be attentive to what you're saying if they're not actually laughing at your jokes. Yeah, because if you feel like you're a doctor who's not funny or who doesn't have a good sense of humor, and you feel like you're a lost cause, and there's no way you're ever going to be perceived as funny, just laugh a lot at other people's humor. Like That's delightful. Everybody likes being around people who laugh. Oh, yeah. One of my friends is like everybody's favorite person because <laughs> he laugh. just laughs at everybody. He thinks he makes you feel like you're the funniest person alive. Exactly. Jimmy Fallon is a lapper. Yes. He does. Yes. It's a great quality. So I wanted to thank you for a couple of reasons, one of which is as an ear, nose, and throat doctor, we're not often thought of that much. Like if there's a list of which Game of Thrones character is most like your specialty? They'll talk about orthopedic surgeons and anesthesiologists. But there was an Onion article titled, You Get Into This Business for the Ear and the Nose, But the Throat Really Grows on You. So <laughs> I really appreciate the shout out to our little thought of specialty. You're welcome. That, uh, that. I'm glad you noticed that. So can you tell us a bit about your book, your books, but specifically how to write funny and how to write funnier and your podcasts for people interested that want to take a deeper dive into how to be funny? Yeah. So after spending a lifetime in the comedy business, I was a, a cartoonist. I had a comic strip for many years. And then I got into The Onion. I was one of the founders and was on and off at The Onion for like 15, 20 years. And when I got out, I felt like I was really good at crafting jokes because I had done it so much that I decided I needed to put it down in a book that's a very simple how-to book called How to Write Funny that spells out the formula that professionals use to write comedy. And it's, uh, it's done pretty well. And that book focuses on jokes because I believe the first step to learning how to write comedy is you have to be able to craft a one-line joke. And the sequel, How to Write Funnier, is more about how do you expand that into a longer bit or a set or like a short comedy article or maybe a sketch, a comedy sketch. And there's a third book coming called How to Write Funniest, which is about how to use the power of a writing team to really elevate the quality of the humor by putting brains together. And then I I recently wrote another book called Outrageous Marketing of a story of the onion and how to build a 
popular brand with no marketing budget, which was just kind of, there are so many wacky antics in the early days of The Onion, all the times we almost got sued and all the times we got in trouble. And it was really just a fun and crazy time. But there's also a lot of lessons to be learned about building a business because The Onion started with nothing and no investor. And now it's like a multi-million dollar worldwide brand. So I kind of mix those two, personal remembrance and like business book. I'm pretty happy with that book. And yeah, the podcast is, is called How to Write Funny. And I interview professional comedians, comedy writers, people in the comedy business about how they do what they do. And my website is howtowritefunny.com where I give people advice on how to write comedy professionally. Well, clearly <laughs> the prolific writing career the podcasts, the speaking, Second City, you're extremely busy. So I really appreciate all the time you've taken out to to teach us how to connect a little better, how to use humor to connect a little better with our patients, because with that, we can have more impact. So I think you've helped a lot of patients get better through this podcast. So I appreciate that. Plus all the laughter that you've created. <laughs> I hope so. The best medicine. It was my pleasure, Bradley. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of this week's Remember This series, which closes out the year. I'm Dr. Bradley Block, and it's been a pleasure to revisit these incredible conversations with you. Each of these episodes has offered us valuable lessons, not just for our professional lives, but for personal growth as well. As we step into the new year, I'm thrilled to bring you engaging and informative content with a new episode each week featuring our amazing contributors. Our release schedule changes from Tuesday and Thursday to just Thursday. We'll dive into topics with our guest hosts like physician nomad, Dr. Christine Goins, positive psychologist, Dr. Jordan Feingold, and of course, we'll continue to enhance our patient communication skills with insights from Dr. Scott Abramson. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and here's to a year of growth, learning, and meaningful connections. Remember to check out our website for more information and resources and my growing blog. Take care, stay curious, and I'll see you next Thursday with another enriching episode of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And now a final word from our sponsor. At Pearson Ravitz, they understand that life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness, injury, or catastrophic event could put you and your family in a devastating financial situation. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Visit pearsonravitz.com today and embark on a journey of safeguarding your future. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.